Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. This is my 50th episode and my one-year anniversary, featuring the host and founder of the Order of Man podcast and movement, Ryan Mickler. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Gentlemen, what is going on today? My name is Ryan Mickler. I am your host and the founder of the Order of Man podcast and movement. Thank you for being here. Thank you for believing in the mission of reclaiming and restoring masculinity. It continues to become more and more evident that we are lacking strong, virtuous, righteous, honorable, capable men in society. And, you know, we're experiencing that with lockdowns and mandates and government overreach and what we see not only here in America, but abroad. Uh, And I really believe that if more men stepped up and knew how to step up and were more capable, uh, we wouldn't see so much of this overreach and those attempting to grasp for power over us. And and I've got a lot to say about that. In fact, in the coming weeks, I'm going to talk a lot about power and what is it and why should we fight and rebel against it? And what do we replace it with? If we're not after power ourselves or we don't want other people in power over us, then what do we replace it with? So I've got some thoughts that I'm going to be sharing with you in the coming weeks on that. Uh, But today I wanted to talk with you about our relationship with failure. We've got an experience that I'm going to share with you here shortly. uh, And then I'm going to give you a framework. And I share frameworks with you guys because frameworks work best for me. If I have one, two, three, four, five steps, I can more accurately and confidently accomplish what it is I'm, I'm after and what I want to accomplish. Let's get to this uh, conversation about a healthy relationship with failure. So the other day I posted on Facebook, in, in our Facebook group, in fact, which you can check out at facebook.com slash groups slash order of man, uh, that we've got an event this weekend. As In fact, as you're listening to this, our event is currently running. Uh, and it's a father-son event. It's all designed to give 20 dads with 20 of their boys the skills and conversations and resources and everything they need to thrive. Uh, And I had made this post on the socials about our event that happens to be sold out and how excited I am about it, especially if we're, since we're running it from our, our new uh, facility, which is here on my property in Maine. And what I had said is that five years ago, we launched an event and not a single person signed up, not one. Not that one signed up or three signed up and we just didn't have enough. No, no one signed up, not a single soul. And so I lost a lot of money in that deal. I definitely lost some pride and I lost some sleep over it as well because I was concerned as to why I couldn't get anybody to sign up. And what I had said on this post is that in those sleepless nights, I spent a bunch of time thinking about how I would make this order of man thing work and how I would make these events work. And part of the solution is this event that we're running here and having the property and the facility and everything else. And so the last three or four years, we've sold out of every single event that we've ever put on and hosted. 
So I talked about the, the embarrassing failure that was five years ago and that sort of thing. And I used the term fail, failure, fail, right? And I was taken back. I was blown away with how many men came back and said, you know, it's only a failure if you don't learn or failure is just your first attempt in learning. And you didn't really fail because you got better. And while I appreciate the encouragement and the positive support, I think there's a deeper conversation that needs to be had here. It's amazing to me how incapable we as men are of saying the word fail. We refuse to say it. And so we come up with little little workarounds and clever little catchphrases like I said earlier, first attempt in learning. It's only failure if you didn't learn. Bullshit, guys. It's failure. Let's, let's, let's not change the definition of words to fit our own narrative or to attempt to make ourselves feel better about our own inadequacies. And this is very important because if we don't acknowledge and embrace the idea of failure, we're never going to improve. And I'm going to explain that here to you in a minute. And you might think, well, you know, Ryan, it's just semantics. And maybe to a degree it is. But even if it's semantics, I want you to wrap your head around the concept of failure. I've never once shied away from failing. I've never once shied away from failure. Now, I don't believe that I'm a failure. I don't define myself by fails. But the truth of the matter is, is that I've, I've fallen short of meeting an objective in my life. Whether that's the relationship I have with my wife. A lot of you guys know I went through a separation years, almost 12 years ago uh, with my wife. That was a failure. Now, we didn't divorce. We're still together. And so you might say, well, see, you didn't fail. Yes, in the grand scheme of things, we're still together. But there were some failings on my part. In my business, I struggled, guys. I have struggled in so many different areas and capacity of my business. I've failed when it comes to my health. I've failed when it comes to other objectives that I have. And we need to acknowledge the fact that sometimes you're going to fall short. And again, it doesn't mean you're a loser. It doesn't mean you're pathetic. It doesn't mean you're a piece of shit. It just means you failed. And so if we can learn to compartmentalize the experiences that we have, then we can better equip ourselves to not repeat the same mistakes over and over again. But if we're trying to coddle ourselves through our own head talk and through our own narrative about why, oh, I didn't really fail. Like, you know, I meant this is a learning opportunity. Like, <laughs> that ain't going to serve you, gentlemen. Is it a learning opportunity? Sure. Is it a failure? Yes. And both can exist. Learning and failing are not mutually exclusive. You can fail and you can still learn. You can fail and not be a failure. You can fail and get better. You can fail and do the things you need to do so that you don't repeat the same mistakes next time. They don't exist in this little, little bubble of like, if I fail once, then I'm just done. My life's over and, and I'm not a man. And like, just, just end it right here because there's nothing better I can do moving forward. No, guys, compartmentalize it. You failed. You failed to show your wife how much you appreciated her. You failed to resist the temptations that come into your life. You failed to grow your business the way that you wanted to. You failed to pay off debt. You failed everywhere, all the time. All of us have all failed. And we need a better relationship with the concept of failure. Because if we're running away from it, whether we're trying to come up with clever little cute catchphrases, uh, or we're just not putting ourselves in situations where we can fail at all, then how are you ever going to improve? How are you ever going to get better? How are you going to, to, to make your life into something that it currently isn't? You're not. 
So let's talk about a very, very simple framework. This is a three-part framework. And I would love for you guys to start using the word fail more. Hey, man, I really failed on this one thing. And by the way, that's not the entirety of the thought process or conversation. Well, I failed, period. I failed, comma. So therefore, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z next time so I can be better or achieve what it is I'm after. It's not, I failed is not the entirety of your thought process. I failed, therefore, I'm going to do this. That's starting to be more of a complete picture. So let's break this down. I work best in frameworks. A lot of you guys do as well. 50 years ago, if you wanted to learn about masculinity, you only had a few places to go, which was mostly limited to your father, your family, movies and books, friends and coworkers, and the military. On one hand, these were all great or at least reliable sources of information about masculinity. On the other hand, their perspective was probably rather narrow. That's not to say that they were wrong, merely incomplete. A father or family can only know so much. We can only watch so many movies. We tend to self-select friends that are like us. And the military, as far as I can tell, has always just had its own way of doing things. Now, bearing all that in mind, I'd like to take a moment to appreciate something that I think is pretty spectacular. If these were all the sources of information about masculinity available to men 50 years ago, think about all the sources of information we have available to us now. Websites, podcasts, videos, books, social media accounts, online communities, men's groups, meetups, conferences, training programs, retreats, and so much more. Never before in human history have so many men put so much thought and energy into the question of what it means to be a man. And if we do this right, we may never have to again. Consider, we might be living through a once-in-history event that's not happening around us, but through us. We are bringing it about with our efforts and as a giant global community. This is what I mean by the renaissance of men. That's what it's about. But what's driven the Renaissance forward isn't a command from the outside, like from a king directing the men of the world to explore their masculinity. Instead, the shift has been happening from the inside out, as men discover that their understanding of masculinity has been insufficient to meet the demands of their personal lives, including their homes, families, careers, and even citizenship and faith. Driven by their desire to know, to grow, and to improve, Many men of our age have set out alone to find answers. They are explorers of a long-lost land, wayfinders, mapmakers, and especially teachers. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Ryan Mickler, and not only is he the host and founder of the Order of Man podcast and movement, he's one of my greatest teachers about men and masculinity, perhaps the greatest. In starting the Renaissance of Men podcast one year ago, I said, Everything I know about podcasting, I learned from Ryan Mickler. I don't feel shame admitting that because it's the truth. I looked at what I judged to be the best example and borrowed much of it with attribution. And somehow I knew that Ryan understood that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And as the year has progressed, I've slowly made this format my own, including the opening clips and essays, which provide an introduction to my guests so I can spend their time and yours on the questions that matter. But that doesn't mean I've stopped learning from Ryan. I've watched his meteoric growth with admiration and also with a notepad. He just crossed 35 million downloads and five years without missing a single episode at three episodes a week. 
That's legendary consistency. That effort has paid off with a lineup of guests that reached to the pinnacle of achievement today. Whatever you may think of Ben Shapiro, Dan Crenshaw, or even Matthew McConaughey and David Goggins, these are men that have made an impact on America and the world. They could talk to anyone or no one, and they chose to talk to Ryan. I think that's worthy of celebration. You might think that this is all one man could learn from another, but for me there's more. Because I've also found Ryan to be one of the deepest and most nuanced thinkers and doers about masculinity today, whether he's hunting, rolling jujitsu, building a canoe, or parenting. This is even better when I take into consideration that he's also one of the most outspoken. On Twitter and Instagram, he pulls no punches. And as you'll hear, he pulls no punches with me either, which is everything I'd hope for from one of my greatest teachers. In our conversation, we discuss the importance of failure and how nobody cares about you, a perspective on real hardship and how not to take the luxury we live in for granted, how to enjoy the process over the goal, relating to your emotions as a man through actions instead of talking, the poverty of the zero F's mentality, capitalism and the subjective value of goods, Ryan's take on toxic masculinity, and finally the difference between man, masculinity, and manliness. Men, I ask you not to take for granted the incredible moment that we're living through, that we each have the opportunity to learn about masculinity, not just from our fathers, friends, or favorite movies, but from teachers, men whose names will stand the test of time. I've learned so much from Ryan and will continue to. I know I'm not alone because many other men have as well. And soon, I think America will too. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, celebrating my one-year anniversary, the host and founder of the Order of Man podcast and movement, the one and only Ryan Mickler. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, brother, it's been, uh, what, a couple of months, but uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. You guys came out and spent some time with me a couple of days ago, or a couple of months ago, and uh, God, we had a great time. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. That was a blast. Yeah. And it's actually, um, it's actually a pretty auspicious day, uh, for both of us because, uh, this is the one year anniversary of my podcast, which is, which is pretty incredible. And you just launched, uh, the, uh, the Ben Shapiro podcast, uh, today, which is an amazing achievement after, after five years of doing order of man, like it's, that's a pretty, uh, a pretty monumental rise. So it's, it's exciting that we're kind of crossing paths on this particular moment. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fact that, uh, we've been able to grow at the pace we have and continue to grow exponentially is it's, it's not a testament to what I'm doing. Frankly, it's a testament to what you and I are doing, you know, what we're mm-hmm. talking about with regards to masculinity and why manliness is so important and why men should be honored and valuable or at least perceived as valuable members of society. So, you know, to be a small part of what this movement is all about is, is very humbling, inspiring, and, and I'm just expi- excited to be a small part of it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you've, I mean, it's obviously it's millions of men around the world and there's so many different leaders that are working on so many different aspects of it. Um, but I thought that the tweet that you sent today about um, you decided to become Let's see, what were you were successfully novice to um, a novice professional or something like that at the beginning? Yeah, I think I said uh, successful amateur to novice professional, I think is the, the verbiage I used. 
Yeah. And that's, that's pretty important. You know, that's, that's a, that's a really important mind shift. It may seem really subtle, but to begin framing yourself in this larger kind of way, like, no, there's a, there's a big world of men doing things out there outside of this thing that we, we might just call the men's movement broadly. There's this whole wider world out there to participate in. And rather than being stuck in a silo or in, you know, some sort of, um, some sort of outer suburban neighborhood to kind of move into the, the mainstream of society is a big mental shift. Well, I think there's the concept of the big fish in the little pond or the little fish in the big pond or the big ocean or whatever, you know, so which one do you want to be? I don't don't want to be a big fish in a little pond. I mean, it feels good on the ego. You know, if I'm, if I, if I identify as an amateur, for example, uh, it feels really good to be the best of the amateurs, but do I want to be the best of the amateurs or, or would I prefer to be the worst of the professionals? Mm-hmm. I remember years and years ago. The, the beginning uh, as to the professionals, maybe. Look, I'm not afraid of saying worst. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm not afraid of saying I failed. A lot of guys are. Like they come up with all these little clever things like uh, fear. Fear is one. F- mm-hmm. uh, what is it? A first or a, a, a false evidence appearing real or failure. First attempt in learning. Like we're so afraid of mm-hmm. this concept of fear or failure that mm-hmm. we can't even say the word. Mm-hmm. You know, we utter these, these little, these little tropes that, that, that make us feel better about our own inadequacies. And you know what? Like there's things that I fail on and I, I'm, I'm, I'm publicly willing to admit that. And it's funny to me. It's funny. It's, it's, it's entertaining to me at this point, how many guys will come up with little clever catchphrases like, well, Ryan, you know, you didn't fail if you learned. No, dude, I still failed and I can (laughs) learn. Like I can do both. both. Mm -hmm. They're not mutually exclusive. Or Mm -hmm. the other one, one I saw today was, well, there's fail for, uh, uh, there's false evidence appearing real that's fear. And then first attempt in learning, like there's all this, there's all this like weird stuff. It's like, just say you failed. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we so concerned with that? Mm-hmm. I think failure is a very clear objective or a very clear definition. It simply means that you did not meet your desired objective, period. Like that's it. And then you can learn from it. You can grow and you can develop. And so look, I've never shied away from saying that I failed or that I'm fearful or that in, in the case you just talked about that I'm a, 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 uh, a beginning, you know, amateur or that I'm the worst uh, professional that doesn't bother me, uh, because I have a healthy relationship with fear and failure and I'm willing to learn and grow from it. And I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm completely okay with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're willing to go through the process of actually, you know, failure hurts. Like it, there's an emotional component to it's when you invest. It's supposed to hurt. Exactly. Exactly. And to that, to that very point, like I lived in San Francisco for a long time and I wanted to be a, a professional DJ, like a dance music DJ. I did that for a very long time. I failed at that. Hard failed. Like didn't get, didn't accomplish anything that I wanted to. I did some things that I'm very proud of, but I didn't accomplish what I want to. And I had to pack up that whole side of the life, my life and move on. But then there was a funny thing that happened when I sat down to do my first podcast a year ago. As I sat down, I started recording. I'm like, wait a minute. I know how to use a digital audio workstation. I know how to process audio. I know about Mm -hmm. all those plugins. And I never would have gotten that information if it hadn't been for my time 
in the DJ world. And I'm far happier doing this than I ever was trying to do that. So yes, so to, to your point about there being, you can fail and learn for, from it. Like, yes, I hard failed. And at the same time, I was able to take that information forward and put it to a far more practical use. And I think some men aren't willing to endure the process of having failed like I did for five years until they could pick it up and be like, oh, wait, I actually did learn something from that. And the failure was necessary. Yeah, but can you imagine, Will, if instead of what you just suggested to me, you stroked your own ego and you said, I'm special and doggone it, I'm important. (laughs) And then you deluded yourself into believing that you were good just the way you were. And that's what the doctrine of popular culture will teach us, that you're perfect and you're special and you're important and you're wonderful. Bullshit. You're not special. Will, you're not special. I'm not special. (laughs) So be it. Yeah, no, I'm not special. You're not important. I'm not important. If I died today, you know how many people would care? A, a Five. Lot. I, I, I no, no. Five people would care. My wife and my four kids. And okay, six. My mom. Six I, people I, would care. I'd care. Everybody else would drive on. No, you, you would care for like three days and then you would drive on. And I, that's not to diminish I, you I at all. I understand what you mean. I understand what you but mean. But the point I'm making is like, nobody cares about you. You're not special. You're not important. And stop putting yourself on a pedestal you don't belong. Instead, mm. just do your work. You know, strive to find meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in life. Strive to serve other people. Uh, I, I'm completely okay with five people, maybe six, maybe seven, if we include you, Will, caring <laughs> about me. I'm okay. Sure. You know, if I, if, look, We've done over 800, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's 800, but it's over 700. It might be close to 800 at this point, podcasts. And you know what people would say if that it, a podcast didn't get released on Tuesday? Well, where the hell's Ryan? Like, why is he such a dick? He didn't release a podcast on Tuesday. Oh, man. And then they would realize I died. And, and then guess what they would do? They would go find another podcast to listen to. You're not special. You're not important. <laughs> Nobody cares about you. And, and you might think, well, why is Ryan being such an a-hole? It's because if you put yourself on a pedestal, you don't belong. You're going to perform in this very weird and strange way. Mm-hmm. Instead, let's just accept reality for what it is, that there's a small contingent of people that I impact. It's my wife, it's my kids, it's my colleagues, it's my coworkers, it's the people in my neighborhood, it's people I'm connected with like you, and everybody else really just doesn't care about you. And that's actually empowering because what I've seen a lot of guys do is they'll say, you know, either verbally or non-verbally, they won't do things because, oh, what if people think less of me? What Nobody's thinking about you. Yeah. Like nobody cares. Well, what if, what if people judge me or perceive me? Nobody cares, man. Mm-hmm. So just go out and live the, the life that you see fit and, and do what you want to do and let the chips fall where they may. It's all going to be okay. And in a thousand years, unless you're Marcus Aurelius or Jesus Christ, your name is not going to be uttered among anyone, but it will be remembered by your genealogy. It will be remembered by your kids and their their children and their grandchildren and so on and nobody else. And it's okay. It's all right. It's liberating. It's actually liberating. liberating. It It allows you to do what you want to do. 
Yeah, it sounds very challenging to hear that no one cares because we all want to know that people outside of our immediate family care about us. But when, so it's very, I guess, confronting to hear that. But the truth of the matter is like, once you actually move through that, it's like, oh yeah, wait, no one cares. I can just kind of live the life that I want. I don't really have to worry about it. There's a great painting. I'll link it in the show notes. And it's, this is beautiful. It's like from the Renaissance period. It's beautiful, idyllic landscape. People are farming, you know, there's ships out on the water. It's a huge painting. It's just, it just looks like an everyday average landscape. But then up in the corner, there's a, there's a man with wings falling. And it's the story of Icarus and Daedalus. You know, Icarus flew too close to the sun and his wings mm-hmm. melted. So, you know, that story is, of course, it's such a huge part of, of our culture. But viewed in the perspective of what was happening in the, in, in, in the world, you know, around him, you know, it's just everyone's going about their lives and there's this dude falling from the sky and no one's really noticing. It's just sort of to help, you know, the painter back in the day thought, you know, let's help contextualize this so people can get a better sense of what life really is rather than feeling I'm the main character of this epic story and it all depends on me. It's like, well, that's not actually true, but it can be really easy to think that way. And it's disempowering to think that way. Well, there's another beautiful lesson here too. And I agree with you. But the other lesson is, let's just take the two examples I gave you, Marcus Aurelius and Jesus Christ. I live like a king compared to both of those individuals. Mm -hmm. The way that I live, the opportunities that I have, the abundance in my life is infinitely better than either of those two individuals. Take Mm -hmm. Alexander the Great, take Theodore Roosevelt, take George Washington, take Jesus Christ, take uh, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, take any of these, Julius Caesar. I live like a king compared to those individuals. And yet no one will remember my name. The reason I even bring this up is because I think it's very, very important that we focus on ourselves and we focus on those in our purview. And for me, that's my children. That's my wife. That's my friends, Will, like you. Uh, that's people who might be impacted by what I'm doing. And I'm just going to focus on my neighbors. You know, I've got John and Sherry across the street. I've got, uh, Ben, Ben down the road. Like these are, these are, these are the, these are my people Mm -hmm. and I'm going to focus on them. But in the meantime, like we've taken for granted the fact that when I go to bed tonight, I'm going to put my head on a pillow and I'm going to lay on a mattress that's been scientifically engineered to give me the best sleep possible. I'm going to have a climate controlled environment. I'm going to be able to lock my doors and I have a firearm to defend myself. And I've got my four kids that are with me and we're safe in these walls. Like that's crazy. Mm -hmm. And there's been no other time in human history that we've been able to enjoy the prosperity that we do now. So what do you think? And when you, and when you put it that way, you know, you've got electricity flowing through the walls and can pick up the right. phone and call anybody you want and have access to any information. And there's a refrigerator full of, you know, amazing food that keeps it cold and fresh for way longer and more varieties of food. And that, you know, people like Marcus Aurelius never would have even imagined tasting um, the 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 splendor that we live in is is out of control and in a in a very wonderful way. Um, so, what do you think accounts for the fact that people do have that loss of perspective and in, in their own, I guess, self importance? Nobody appreciates what it takes to be successful 
because it's been bestowed upon them. And when I say bestowed upon them, what I mean is that somebody else had to sacrifice for you to get what you have. You know, you take, for example, the freedoms that we enjoy within this country. You didn't, well, you didn't have to fight for that. That's right. Right? Like, have you been to war? Nope. Okay. Now I've spent some time in Iraq. I spent a year in Iraq, but even still with my service in Iraq, like I didn't have to fight for the freedoms of this country. I didn't have to do that. Somebody else did that for me. You know, somebody else put their balls on the chopping block and, and, and said, I will do this for my future posterity. I didn't have to do that. Somebody else did it for me. And so we live in this relative ease of modernity where everybody else has done everything for us. And we just think, oh, well, this is just the way it is. Bullshit, man. This isn't human. This isn't mm-hmm. the human existence. This is a snippet. You know, what have we been on this planet as, as homo sapiens for what, 20,000 years or so, give, mm-hmm. give or take, right? In, 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 in 100 million plus years, we've been here for 10,000 years. Come on now. Mm-hmm. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're living in a, in a, in a culture and a society and a time and space that, that 99% of our ancestors never lived in. And we haven't had to fight for anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you want food, man, I could drive down to the convenience store. That's a mile and a half from my house. And I could go get, pick up a processed package of beef jerky or my personal favorite is the, uh, seafood sandwich that they make down there at uh, Mm -hmm. Steve's, which is right just down the road here. Like, I don't have to go out in the wilderness and hunt. I choose to. I don't have to. I don't have to be physically fit. Like, why would I have to be physically fit? To what? To drive to work? To get on the computer with you? To punch away at the keyboard every day? Like, tell me why Mm -hmm. I need to be physically fit. I don't need to do any of that. And yet our ancestors did because they were worried about the saber-toothed tiger that was going to eat them tonight if they didn't take care of themselves, if they didn't develop the skill sets that they needed to thrive. And so what we need to do as men is we need to put ourselves in voluntary hardship. There, there used to be a point in time where you didn't get to decide whether or not you wanted to be a man that was thrust upon you. Otherwise, you die. You literally die. The environment, the elements, the, the animals will eat you alive. But now we have to actually choose. My friend Jack Donovan says it, and I know you've talked with Jack. Mm-hmm. And he says, we're in an age right now where you have to choose to be a man. Masculine is different, but to be a man, you have to actually make that conscious decision. You have to choose. Are you going to be a man or are you not? And if you are, then you're going to have to put yourself under voluntary hardship. That might mean something as simple as going to jujitsu. How crazy does that sound? That sounds insane to me. I have to go train for an hour and a half with other men that want to push me, test me, choke me, strangle me, bend my limbs in the way they're not supposed to go. Like I actually have to volunteer for that. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Because naturally life is not going to present that to you anymore. So I'm all about voluntary hardship. If I can put myself in situations that are dangerous or challenging or demanding, I'm going to become a better person and I'm going to have an advantage over 99.9% of people who just coast with the ease of modernity. So one of the memes that's going around these days is um, strong, let's see, uh, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. Like that sort of poem of uh, 
inevitability. And so people mm-hmm. say we're, we're living through the hard times that are creating the, the strong men. Um, and I've, it's difficult to disagree with that. In fact, I do agree with that because I think this entire movement of, of men is an example of, of that happening. I don't agree f- with that actually, Will. Okay. Hit me. Go for it. What's hard? What's hard well, about I'm, your life right now? Well, I, I suppose in a, in a relative, in, in a relative historical sense, um, nothing compared to the, the way that we're talking about. But I mean, I think there's- That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I get what you mean, but I, I think there's still there's still a feeling at, at minimum. There's a feeling of of encroaching dread and encroaching and encroaching, I guess, doom and so, depending on the day. Maybe encroaching, a, but it ain't here yet. Will? Well, I mean, people are having people are watching their marriages dissolve over the vaccine. You know, the people are losing friends, they're losing jobs, and this is not this is not like you know historical degree level level hardship. Certainly, like we don't have to worry about the saber toothed tiger, you know, leaping out from the closet. But at the same time. You know, there is a there is a component of life where um, there's more to it than just immediate physical hardship, and I, and I think those are I, very real. Those are very real components, but not in a historical sense. But this is the hardship that we're still faced with, and I think it's I mean hardship is all subjective, right? Like we True. we are right. Like okay, so you're going through a struggle, struggling marriage. Is that hard? Yeah, it's hard individually. It's hard. I've been through a separation with my wife. That was the hardest time in my life. Is it is it hard? according to like humanity and the history. No, it's not hard. Right. Well, you lost your job. And so you, now you got to go work in an inferior position, but you still have money. You still have a roof over your head. You still have access to food. You still have a vehicle to drive. Is that hard? That's not hard. We're not in hard times, man. I'm telling you right now, you there, there's going to be guys who are listening to this right now. who are like, Oh, well, you don't know my situation. Bullshit. I know your situation. I know you're fat. I know you're going through a separation or a divorce. I know you just got laid off. I know you're dealing with a medical condition. I know you just went through a bankruptcy. I know somebody just sued you because I went through all of that. But that ain't hard, man. It's only hard because we're weak. You know what's hard? Look at somebody going to a concentration camp and their wife being pulled literally from their arms and their children being slaughtered. That's hard. You, you want to talk about hard? Forget about the COVID quote unquote pandemic. Let's talk about the Spanish flu. Let's talk about the black plague. It ain't hard. We're, it's hard because we're weak. If we make ourselves stronger, then what we're experiencing right now isn't hard. It's a little drop in the bucket. So I don't think, honestly, I don't think that we're at this point where it's the, the hard times create strong men. We're, we're not there. We're in good times. Times are great. I have more money than I've ever had. I have more abundance. I have more access to information. I have more freedom than I've ever had. It is amazing right now. We're not at the hard times. We're at good times create weak men. And all of us are becoming weak and pathetic and cowardly. And that's what's going to create the real hardship, which is when you have to choose which one of your children gets to eat. You have to go to war to face an enemy that literally wants to kill not only you, but everybody you care about in your posterity. That's what's coming down the pike. And unless we figure it out ahead of time, we're in for a very, very dangerous, dangerous path. 
That was a very sobering reality check. And I, I agree with everything you're saying. Thank you for that. And I'm a, the people listening can't see, but I've been nodding along with everything that you're saying. Cause you're right. You're right. You're right. It's easy to get, it's easy to, uh, to look at this and to imagine that the times are, are harder than they actually are while also being aware that they, they could be quite a bit harder than they are currently. Um, and, and I hear in what you're saying, a challenge that, you know, as, as strong as you, as, as strong as anyone listening or any of us think that we're being in this moment, there's so much stronger that we could be and that it's necessary to become, to forestall the real, the real hard times, which was, which was what I was going to, the nature of my question was that, you know, thinking forward into the future without the sense of context that you just provided, thinking forward into the future, how can we prevent hard times from coming again? Really, my question should have been, how can we prevent the true hard times from coming on? So it's, that's, that's more what I was getting at. Well, the answer to your question is a realistic uh, analysis of what's going on. Right. We're mm-hmm. so delusional. We're so dis- sedated. I mean, we sedate ourselves with drugs and alcohol and pornography. And I was at the gas station earlier today and I try not to be judgmental, but at the same time, you know, I saw this gal in front of me and she had uh, a, a, a pint or a fifth or whatever of, of some sort of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had a six pack of Corona and then she had, you know, six cans of some sort of wine cooler. Uh, and then I was like, finally, this woman's done. Like, finally, oh my God, goodness. Like I'm trying to just buy my, my, you know, Red Bull, which is another conversation. So we can talk mm-hmm, about that. Sure. <laughs> um, and, and then she, she got everything rung up and she's like, oh, actually I want two lottery tickets as well. Like, oh Average like, Tuesday. Look how, look how sedated we are. Yeah. And I'm not trying to point fingers at this woman. Like I, I was right. drinking a Red Bull. Okay. Like I love chips and salsa. I went to the gas station today and I bought this, this quote unquote cheese stick thing. And I'm like, this isn't even cheese. Like this isn't even real. This isn't even real food, yeah. you know? And I bought it and it was delicious. Okay. So like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're so sedated on drugs, alcohol, alcohol, pornography, food, et cetera, et cetera, that we can't even face the reality of the situation that we deal with. We have an oppressive government right now. We have a regime that is interested in sedating us and ruling us. Uh, we have uh, a threat to our democracy. We have crony capitalism. Uh, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. And Unless we can wake up to the reality of our situation, we'll never be able to deal with it effectively and head it off before it continues to get worse. And it will get worse. I promise you, it will mm-hmm. get worse. So I guess, I guess then, then um, there's there's a couple of different terms. So there's like there's the notion of what we're talking about, like a hard times, like hard times, meaning you know soldiers marching through the streets, dragging people off to the gulags or whatever. And we'll 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 get to that versus some subjective experience of sort of collective shared difficulty. Because you're right, I agree that we have an oppressive regime that seems dedicated to. Um, I don't know. My some people that I talk with say that it's oh, it's just incompetence, and I'm sorry. I don't know that I think that it's incompetence anymore. But that's, that's a, a whole. That's a that's a nice way to look at it. That's <laughs> being very kind. Uh, but you know, that's the that's what I mean when I say hard times is this subjective experience of shared difficulty where we're going that we're going through where things are being taken from us. No, we're not lined up in the streets yet. Um, thank God for that. 
no, there aren't, you know, bread lines. Thank God for that. But there still is this feeling of like, there's something that we're going through. There's something that's that's even making us ask these questions of men because in the 1980s, no one was really asking this. Well, some people, some men were asking this question. But, you know, this this question, there wouldn't, there wouldn't have needed to be an order of man kind of podcast. And I can't say we're a renaissance of men podcast. And I can't say that, you know, back then times were any less good than they are now in any significant way. Maybe we didn't have the internet. Maybe we didn't, you know, has, have as many different varieties of, of things to enjoy. But the 80s were, they were a pretty good stable time. In fact, they were a better time than they are now in some ways. I think probably socially there was a bit more, well, I, I was too young to even know, so I can't make that assessment. But materially, the conditions were very similar, and yet there wasn't, there wasn't an order of man podcast or even a need for it. So there's some sort of hardship that must be generating this movement forward of men like waking up being like, well, wait a minute, we've, we've allowed ourselves to get weak. And it's that subjective badness that we're feeling that's generating. That's why I say it's the hard times while at the same time acknowledging it's not a true hard times, it's a relative hard times versus an objective hard times. I mean, it may be tw- hard times compared to 20 years ago, but it's not going to be hard times compared to what we're going to experience 30 years from now if we continue down the path we are. It's yes. certainly not hard times compared to, uh, you know, the forties and and what it was 70 years ago or 90 mm-hmm. years ago during the twenties. I'm trying yeah. to get my math right. Cause time moves so quickly. I might be off years. by a decade, a hundred years, right? A hundred years. Right. Yeah. years. right. Exactly. Of course, but a hundred <laughs> years. I'm not it's very okay. good at know. math. <laughs> okay. I don't know where we are anyway. You know what I'm saying? But like, it, it is all subjective. So to answer your question, the best thing that we can do is if, if hardship is subjective, then the best thing that we can do is make ourselves more capable of dealing with true hardship. Mm -hmm. And so how do we do that? We put ourselves in demanding and difficult situations. We go to jujitsu, we strength train. If there's an opportunity to speak in public, we do that. If there's some sort of business or movement or organization we want to start, we do that. If there's a conversation that we feel like you know, I really want to have this conversation with my boss or my wife or my children, but I'm afraid. So I won't, instead of saying I won't, then you go do that. You put yourself voluntarily into the fire. And then when things actually get hard, subjective to what everybody else believes, you think to yourself, what the hell are you guys complaining about? This is easy. This is a cakewalk. Because Mm -hmm. you put yourself in demanding situations. And that's what I try to do. Last night, for example, I didn't want to go to jujitsu. I did not want to go. We did our legacy event. I had 20 men and 20 boys out here. I spent three and a half days talking and coaching and instructing and going through all of this stuff. And I felt like, you know, Ryan, you, you deserve a break. You can take it easy. You need the rest. You need this. You need that. All of them excuses not to go to jujitsu. I got over that and I just went because I committed to doing that. And I felt better and I'm a better human being. And I know that sounds, it just, it just, it doesn't sound right. Like I I don't even know how to say it, but I'm a better human being because I went to one jujitsu class. Yes. Mm -hmm. It sounds like hyperbole maybe, right? Like people are like, oh, that's, that's just marketing. That's hyperbole. No, it's, it's true. It's a hundred percent true. And because I won last night, I'm going to win today. Mm -hmm. And because I got up and I trained and I exercised and I'm checking off my task list and I'm doing hard things and I'm thrusting myself into that, I'm going to be better tomorrow because of it. This is how we change what is hard and what isn't. Is going to the gym hard anymore? No. Is it for some people? Yes, of course. It's subjective. 
it isn't, it isn't for me because I've made a commitment and I've proven to myself that I'm capable of doing it. And that alone has value, let alone the, the exercise or whatever happened, whatever happened at the, at jujitsu, you know, has its own independent benefit. It's the, the overcoming of inertia to get up and say, no, I'm going to go and to do, to get your gi on your rash guard and to get in the truck and, and drive over there. That simple act alone has intrinsic value inside you as it would, in, as it would inside me, let alone what happened afterwards, let alone the, the, I guess they're not secondary, but the benefits of exercise and seeing your friends and stuff like that, or whatever you learned on the mats, that simple act of self-overcoming has enormous value. Uh, and I think that it can be really easy to lose sight of of that that critical decision point. Like I know the thing that I'm supposed to do this this morning or this, or today or whatever it is, and I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to summon the in, internal will, the energy, uh, the strength to overcome that resistance. Well, and this is what Stephen Pressfield, the Art of War, right? Yeah. Well, I, I I'm really glad that you're talking about this concept of intrinsic value because in this self-development space. And I think, Will, you and you and I would both say that we fall into the self-development space. Yeah, right? like I think I'm, so. We're both trying to improve, man. That's self-development. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the times what we're looking for as men is, okay, well, what is it that I can do today that's going to move the needle the furthest? And so we gamify the system of self-development, which is very narcissistic. Like, how can I improve myself? My mm-hmm. financial well-being, my physical fitness, like how can I get mine? But I was introduced to a concept from Brett McKay where he had talked about the value of doing things that are just intrinsically valuable. So for example, uh, reading a book, mm-hmm. a lot of people will say, well, you know, Ryan, I'm going to read 15 books this year. I'm going to read 15 <laughs> self-development books this year and I will learn right. X, Y, and Z. Well, what about just reading a book just for the pure enjoyment of reading? That's right. Or, or I'm going to get my, in jujitsu, I'm going to get my my blue belt or my purple or brown or black belt this year. That's my goal this year. Well, what if instead of worrying about getting your purple belt, you just realize that not getting your purple belt, that's not the win. Getting the win is going to class today. Mm -hmm. And you go to class, not for the purple belt, but because you enjoy going to class, Mm -hmm. period. Bottom line. Or hunting. You know, I've got a couple of hunts planned. I want to shoot a big deer. I want to shoot a big mature buck, male deer or elk. Cause I've got two different hunts going on. Like that's what I'd like to, to see. And I already envision, you know, the moment where I get to post that grip and grin on Instagram and all the people get to say, <laughs> look how great you are. Well, what if instead of <laughs> right. you posting on Instagram that the actual win was the fact that you spent five hours by yourself in a tree stand and you got better or that you spent, uh, 20 hours or 40 hours with eight other individuals who motivated you and inspired you and you just enjoyed being present in the moment. What if that's the actual win? What if instead of checking off your 20 books you want to read this year, it's just the fact, and you don't even have to worry about, like, I read 10 pages today. Who gives a shit? What if instead of 10 pages, you're like, you know, I really learned this valuable lesson or I really enjoyed my time. Or instead of in a relationship, you, 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 you weren't so worried about like, what are we going to get out of this? And what's the conclusion that we can come to? And instead you just danced with your daughter because it was nice. Or you played catch with your son, not so he could learn how to bet, throw a better fastball, but just because you enjoy being with your son. Mm-hmm. What, what if we focused more on that? What would that actually look like in life? 
there's a great blog post that I reference. I don't even know who I don't even know who wrote it. The guy isn't. I don't think he's become famous, but the the post certainly has. A man climbs mountains and tells no one. Like you just go mm. and you just climb the mountain. You're not gonna. You don't get up to the top and you take the selfie of yourself at the summit and post it on Instagram. No, you just go climb the mountain. You know, and and there's so much in this in this uh, self development world, personal development world. I think of what Tanner Guzzi talked about last year. He talked about LARPing personal development, which is the men who read all the books and they do all the posts and they put it all on Instagram and it shows them being into self development. But it's like, do you have receipts? Have you accomplished anything? Or are you actually doing the work quietly and making progress without needing to to kind of show off? Like, yes, we all want to celebrate our wins, and I think we should have the opportunity to celebrate our wins. But at the same time. If celebrating the win becomes the point, you've missed the point. You know, it's the whole journey, not the destination thing. When there's real value in that, it's like, no, I'm going to go through this process and I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to let it change me. And maybe I won't tell anybody about it at the end because it's for me, because it's because this is a gift that I want to give myself and it doesn't need to be something that's publicly shared. And it's not even about the goal. It's about the, it's about the pursuit of it in some ways too. Not even the pursuit. You know, I think, I think a mm-hmm. lot of times that comes down to goals. Like I'm not, when I read that book, I, I maybe I don't want to pursue anything. Maybe I just like that book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like when I dance with my daughter, my, my wife and I uh, hosted a wedding here uh, three weeks ago for a friend of ours, him and his uh, now wife got married. And, uh, you know, I decided to dance with my daughter because there was an opportunity to do that. Was there some sort of goal or objective like in that? No. It was just like, I wanted to dance with my daughter. You know, I wanted (laughs) to be present. Um, And, and, and I think comes down to this is like, how do you feel about yourself? You know, like if, if all you're worried is chasing Instagram posts and likes, maybe I get a thousand likes, maybe you get a 10,000, maybe you get a hundred thousand likes, but it's never going to be enough. Mm -hmm. Like if I get a thousand, I want 2000. If I get 2,000 likes, I want 10,000 likes. If I get 10,000 likes, I want 100,000 likes. It's never enough. But what if instead of just focusing on the goal, I focused on the process? Is dancing with my daughter enough? You bet your ass it is. I don't have to measure that against anything else. I don't, I mean, maybe I might say, you know, I'd like to really learn how to, how to, you know, dance a little better, but like, uh, Mm -hmm. There isn't some sort of like objective, some external objective that I'm working towards. And what that does is that allows me to be present in the moment. And so when my daughter laughs or she smiles or she does something, I can respond and react to that, to that stimulus, to the way that she, she sees it or the way she looks at me or the laugh that she has, because I'm not so worried on external results. And instead I'm worrying on, uh, I'm worried and focused on being present and available and responding appropriately to the outside environment in this case dancing with my daughter or playing catch with my son uh, or being present even in this conversation you know mm-hmm. like if i'm focused on well what if people don't like what i say okay that's going to change what i say what if i'm focused on man i really hope will gets you know 200,000 uh, listeners to this podcast and <laughs> if he doesn't then i failed well like okay then i'm not present in what i want to say mhm what's that's what that's the real meat and the joy of life. You know, life is not the mountaintop experience. Life is happening right now. What's happening? It's happening right now. It's not that, um, I talked to Alexander, Alexander Cortez and he said, you know, um, people say, oh, well, that wasn't, that wasn't really me. It's like, well, everything you do is really you. 
It's it, everything, everything that's happening to you is, is your life. And you can choose mm-hmm. to be present with it for the sake of just simply being in the moment and enjoying the conversation for what it is, or dancing with your daughter or reading the book and savoring the simple joy of that. Or can always be, and this is this is particularly American thing that even I think I identify it as an American thing. Always forward, future focused. Always focused on the goal. Always focused on the outcome. Maybe it's a male thing. Maybe it's a male thing too. And to take a little bit of the foot off the gas of that and simply say, well, no, I'm just going to enjoy this meal for what it is, or I'm just going to enjoy this conversation simply for the intrinsic value of it, which we started with, which is a really important bit of nuance because we started out the conversation with something that was not nuanced at all, which is to say you don't matter. No one cares about you, which is a very non-nuanced kind of thing to say. It's very, very block of concrete, you know, very, very strong and, and there. But then to say, then to say, but there's fine nuance and why are you doing the things that you're doing? Are you doing them for the sake of simply enjoying them? Or are you doing them with some larger, with some larger, um, some larger goal in mind? And how can you separate out the goal from the simple enjoyment of the thing? And I love that, that they were kind of going back and forth between these two positions. Yeah. I mean, goal planning is important. You know, I, I wouldn't be one to say that you shouldn't think about your future objectives. You certainly shouldn't. So there's an interesting dichotomy or a spectrum where, where you should fall. But what I've seen, and, and you said something about this, this, you said American or Western way of life, which is like goal oriented. I actually don't know relative to the rest of the world. I, I can't accurately say whether that's true or not. Um, but I think there is a big emphasis in, in, the self-development space, of course, on goal planning, goal setting, achieving your mm-hmm. objectives. That That's valuable. It is valuable, but it's only valuable in so much that you reverse engineer the process. So what I've seen a lot of goal planning systems do is they'll focus so much on the result. Like when you have, or when you make a hundred thousand dollars, when you're 20% body fat, when you can pull 500 pounds off the floor, uh, when your marriage is, is operating the way that you feel it should be operating. And see, th- these are all goal oriented. Orienting yourself to a goal is just the destination, which allows you to roadmap the path that you should take. So if we're on a hike, for example, and I notice and look up uh, over here on the hike that I'm going to go on and I see that mountain, I'm like, okay, well, I want to go to that mountain, right? Like I want to get to that particular point right there. It's only valuable because it gives me a uh, a destination point, which will then I can reverse engineer and I can start working a roadmap and the best way to get there. Right. So like, okay, well, there's the destination. Let me reverse engineer. Here I am. Here's where I want to go. And here's the path. I want to go due North. I'm going to go straight that way. Well, if we're so hyper-focused on the goal, what if we come to a, a lake? Do we swim through that lake? Well, if you're so focused on the destination, you might just do that. But maybe instead of swimming through the lake, because that's not, always the best because if it's winter, you're going to get hypothermia and you're going to die before you get to your point. Maybe instead of doing that is thinking, okay, well, here's a lake. I want to get to that point. Here's a big lake. Is it best to swim through? Is it best to go around? Like, what, what should I do here? And you make the decision to go around it. So you deviate from your path, but ultimately you come back to the path and you get yourself on the right track. So the reason I suggest this is that goal orientation is only valuable in so much that you work backwards into a strategy and a plan for moving there. And then there's one other thing I've noticed. Maybe you get to that peak that you saw from down here at the valley of that 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 mountain. And you get to the peak and you realize, oh, this actually wasn't the peak. This was a false summit. But you don't get to see that it's a false summit until you get to about 50 or 100 yards before that peak. And then you realize, oh, there's another peak up here that I need to get to. And so reverse engineering the process is going to help you be more dynamic, is going to help you uh, 
shift the way the strategies that you approach your life uh, based on external factors. Because I can't control the fact that there's a lake right there. There's nothing I can do about that lake. But I can control how I approach the lake. Do I wait for winter and walk across it? Do I go around it? Do I swim through it? Like, what do I do? That's mm-hmm. all based on how we're going to perform, not necessarily the fact that the lake is there. We just respond to external circumstances. I like that metaphor because it also ties into the simple enjoyment. I like how you said you can go swimming in the lake because there could be, the lake could not be in your way and you could simply just be heading towards the mountain. You could say, oh, maybe I just want to enjoy this lake. Or, or as you as you were saying, there's a, there's a component of that, of, um, of, Simply being, uh, simply being present in your decision making as well, um, not simply just charging forward through an obstacle, you know, face first. Simply saying, "Well, or how maybe do I want to we'll, be?" Yeah. Maybe there's an alligator in the lake, and, pro- and swimming through there probably wouldn't be a prudent decision. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. right. if you wanted to get there the fastest, well, the fastest is swimming through the lake instead of going, you know, a thousand yards north or south. But if you're gonna die, then going a thousand yards north or south would be better for you if ultimately you want to reach your objective. But you can mm-hmm. read that as you come to these obstacles in the road. Mm-hmm. Which, we all, which we all come to, right? We all set out on whatever adventure is meaningful to us towards the things that we're pursuing. And we encounter situations that are unforeseen. And that's part of it. That's part of the journey to set out to do a thing is you will encounter a situation that you can't go necessarily like around or won't, won't go won't go away on its own. Let's put it that way. And so you have to say, well, how am I going to encounter this situation in a way that continues me, moving me forward to, towards my goal, and that I can progress in integrity and, and in safety? In the case of the metaphor, of the lake with the alligator, um, and I have to be able to be responsive to it, and that requires presence in the moment, which is you know sort of what we're we're talking about about how, how to be par- how to be a participant and what's going on and not simply you know I, I don't know what the words would be to be kind of acting it out on instinct or or um, uh, just mindlessly proceeding forward because well that's just what I do so why well, are you actually participating in your life is the word that's coming to mind for me to describe that well I hear a lot of guys and and this is this attitude has permeated much of society guys will say well you know this the zero f's mentality like, right. I don't give an F what anybody else thinks. And this is just the way I am. And if they don't understand it, well, that's on them. And that's not me. It's like, okay, well, you can go ahead and jump in the lake and get eaten by the alligator for all I care. I mean, you're going to be a badass, but you're also going to die. Like people might talk about you and say, man, that guy jumped right in the lake and then he got eaten by an alligator and he died and he can't impact anybody else. You were a badass right, right up until that point. Or you could say, hey, this is my objective. This is my goal. I care about the way others perceive me, at least the right people perceive me. Um, I can adjust the way that I communicate with individuals based on what I'm trying to accomplish. I can pivot. I can move. I can evolve because I'm a mature man. And Maybe fewer people will talk about you because it wasn't as glorious as you getting demolished by the alligator, but you'll still be on the path. And the guy who got eaten by the alligator was a badass, but he's dead. So like, which one would you rather be? I'd rather be the guy that's still marching along the path. Right. Well, let's talk about this zero Fs kind of mentality because there's, there's a lot of it. There's a, there, I, 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 it shows up in so many different ways of guys, this is just, this is just how I am. And you just have to 
and men and women as well. This is, it doesn't it shows up differently, but this, you just have to sort of take me as I am. And I don't really, I don't really care what you think. And I, I always think that behind that is actually, well, no, you actually, you care a lot about what I think. You're just trying to control what I think is, is how that sort of tends to come off to me versus people who truly, you know, have zero Fs are like, oh, I'm just going to do my thing and you're going to think what you're going to think. And I'm going to keep, you know, I'm going to keep on, on my path. That seems to me what a real zero Fs mentality is versus someone who needs to, needs to impose a way of, of perceiving themselves on you. Yeah. The, well, to me, it comes down because I've thought a lot about this and I've had this attitude before and, sure. and a lot of the, the quote unquote manosphere I don't like that term, but I, I right. use it mockingly because I think it deserves that a little bit, uh, is, is this attitude of like, well, you know, all women are bitches and my boss is this and my, the, the, everything's stacked against me. And I, it's like, okay, well, these are people who have gone through hardship and challenges who haven't learned to deal with it in a healthy way. And so a lot mm-hmm. of these guys, and again, a quote unquote manosphere has be, have become the equivalent of, of third wave feminists for men. You know, like I'm a victim, everybody's out to get me, everybody's the enemy, and uh, I just got to protect my own, and I'm not going to work with people, and 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 I'm going to shout out and howl at the moon, and like that's the equivalent of third wave feminism, <laughs> like for mm-hmm. guys. You know, it's funny, they they mock feminism, and I'm like, that's you. Like, you're, you're, you're laughing at yourself, that's you. You're mm-hmm. the same, you're just the male equivalent of it. So it really comes down to two words for me and two thoughts. Number one, immaturity. Just mm-hmm. the level of immaturity. You know, I think about my boys. I've got three boys and I've got a daughter as well. Uh, and I look at them as boys, my three boys. I look at them as children. I don't expect them to be men. I don't expect them to have a healthy grasp on their emotions. I don't expect them to be level-headed and calm and, and, and have a clear focus and goal and objective. I'm trying to work them towards that, but I don't expect that from them. I expect them to consume more than they produce, not produce more than they consume. Like we don't have any expectations about them performing as men, but they're immature, right? And so they're emotional uh, and, and they're reactive versus responsive. We can maybe talk about that if we want to, mm-hmm. uh, but, but they're very immature. And then the other word that comes to mind, so they're both, they both start with I. So there's immaturity and there's insecurity. The other one mm. is that you've gotten beat up. You know, you've got kicked in the dick so many times and <laughs> instead of worrying about getting kicked in the dick, you're like, protect your, you know, protect your junk. But also like, what about the other things that you're exposed to? Right. And so you're like, Oh, I'm so worried about this one area of my life that you get flanked from other perspectives Mm -hmm. and other avenues that, uh, you allow things to completely derail you. You know, this is why, for example, on a micro scale, jujitsu is so important for me is because I use it as a metaphor for life. Immaturity would be going a thousand miles per hour and then watching a guy or experiencing a man who's half your size, you literally have maybe 50, 60 pounds on the gentleman who's been training for 10 years and he runs circles around you. How embarrassing. Mm-hmm. That's a level of immaturity. You let your emotions get the better of you. I'm just going to bull rush through this guy. And then you get strangled, right? Mm-hmm. And the insecurity is the same. It's like, well, the only reason he got me is because of this thing right here. Well, or it could <laughs> be that you were inadequate. And so jujitsu has been a valuable part of my, le- my life uh, because I see where my own immaturities come in. I see where my own insecurities come in. I was rolling with a, a gentleman the other day who happened to catch in a particular move. It was an ankle lock, caught him. And I could see his whole demeanor changed. Mm. He was very upset. 
by the fact that I caught him. Um, and the whole demeanor changed. Is that insecurity? Is that now realizing, oh, okay, well, he's a threat, so I need to change? I don't know, but that there, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there. But I think men in general have a level of immaturity and insecurity that they've never dealt with. Uh, and it creates all sort of vulnerabilities and challenges and problems that we're at oftentimes oblivious to. And what I find really helps with this is, is uh, accountability and to tie a bunch of different threads together, um, you know, to come, to come around to, for example, voluntary hardship. You can't experience a voluntary hardship like jujitsu or weightlifting or a hunt. I mean, a hunt is a little bit out of your control in some ways, but without some measure of accountability. And that's the real value of voluntary hardship is that if you subject yourself to whatever it is, whether it's MMA or jujitsu or, um, or boxing or weightlifting or whatever, you're accountable. You are accountable to material reality and the material reality of what you're confronted with cannot be negotiated with. You can't sit there and tell the bar, well, I was feeling sad that day and someone, someone said something mean to me or whatever. It's like the bar's just going to sit there and you are accountable to that. And I think that I find that that actually helps with a lot of, um, a lot of immaturity and a lot of insecurities to be held accountable for things and to hold people accountable. And that really is, is that really puts the screws to them in lots of ways, but it's sometimes the most accountable, the most compassionate thing that you can do for somebody. And you don't hold your little boys accountable for the standards of men. Maybe Brack, you know, as he's growing older, you're, you're leading him into that, you know, but immaturity and insecurity to that degree can, can only exist in an environment of non-accountability. Um, because when someone is held accountable, I guess, compassionately, let's say, they're forced to move through their insecurity. They're forced to, to, um, to move through those two aspects. And so that's, that's what I bring to that. Yeah. And I've thought a lot about this term accountability. I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I think accountability and having other men that you can band with and that will, that will, will bring this level of accountability is important. Um, one of the and ideas of accountability. Sure. Yeah, of course. There's tiers, right? So there's external accountability. Like for example, uh, if I was accountable to you, I said, Hey, Will, I'm going to be to these things at this time. And then you messaged me and said, Hey, Ryan, did you do your thing? That's external accountability. The internal accountability, which I think is a, a higher tier of accountability, is mm-hmm. that I got up at six o'clock. I, I put in the systems and processes in place that would allow me to honor my goals and objectives and tasks that I have at hand. That's the internal accountability. So external is the lower tier, internal is higher tier. Uh, but I've really been toying with this concept of not only accountability, but feedback, right? We need to have feedback. So I'm, I'm a hunter. I enjoy hunting. I've got uh, three or four hunts coming up this fall. And when I'm out there training with my bow, you know, I might, I might shoot, for example, and notice that my shot groups are high into the left. That's immediate feedback for me to acknowledge what I'm doing. Maybe I'm pulling my bow, uh, maybe my sights off. It could be a thousand different things, but I'm looking for that feedback and I could get pissed at the feedback. That's what a lot of guys do. It's like, I suck at this. Or you could say, okay, well, I'm not going to like attach any sort of weird meaning to it. I'm just going to say, oh, I'm high into the left. So let me just adjust the way that I shoot, or let me just adjust my sight. And then you make the correction and then you're dead on. And you don't have to say you suck at this. You're like, no, I was just some momentary feedback. I made the adequate adjustment uh, and, and everything's fine. 
you know, but an immature man would say, oh, this is stupid. I hate this bow. This bow is stupid. Oh, these arrows. Whoever cut these arrows or like my target, like, oh, I, oh it's wrong. This site, whoever put together this, uh, you know, this range finder, like my range finder is dying and the battery's out. So like, that's why it's off. Okay. <laughs> like you can do that. Sure. You're, you're, you're well within your rights to do that. <laughs> is that going to make you better? Of course mm-hmm. not. Chill out and just figure out what the feedback is telling you. It's the same thing with emotions. A lot of guys do this. They hide their emotions. I'm pissed, but I shouldn't be pissed. And now I'm pissed that I'm pissed. <laughs> Hold on. Maybe actually anger is the right emotion. Maybe it's okay mm-hmm. to be angry. Like it's okay. You know, my son, my oldest son and I, you, you mentioned him earlier, Brecken. Um, he was really upset about his first football game and he wouldn't tell me why. And the other day we were walking in the field on a family walk and I said, Hey, why don't you guys go ahead? Me and Brecker are just going to hang back. So we hung back and I said, Hey, I want you to look at me and tell me what's going on. And he's like, I don't know. And he would look away. He's like, I don't know. And he would look away as he did it. And I said, no, I want you to look me in the eye and tell me what's going on. And he would look me in the eye for half a second and be like, I don't know. And he'd turn his head away. I said, no, mm-hmm. I want you to look me in the eye. And, his, and the minute he locked eyes with me and I just, I spoke to him with my eyes, like, tell me what's going on, man. I'm here to serve you. I'm here for you. Uh, he said, dad, I just, he got a little teary eyed. He said, I feel bad because I let the team down. Mm. And then he felt bad because he didn't think he should feel that way. You know, so it becomes this, this perpetuating cycle of misery. And I said, Brecken, it's okay that you feel bad. He's like, what? I shouldn't feel bad. I said, no. Actually, you should feel bad. Do you think you perform the way you could? He says, no. And I said, it's okay to feel bad about that. Like we all underperform at times. If you bury your head in the sand, you're not going to get better. It's okay that you feel bad about that. He's like, well, are you sure? I said, yeah, but you got to learn from it. You know, it'd be weird if you didn't care. Like if you didn't care about letting the team down, that would be weird to me. That would, that would be more of a problem than feeling bad that you let the team down. And so what can we learn from it? And so we worked through some different things that he needed to prove on and some different skill sets he needed to develop and the mindset to be able to make his blocks and all of this stuff. And we use this pain and it was pain. He was literally crying tears coming from his eyes. Mm-hmm. It was very painful from him for him, but we use the tears and the pain for improvement. And that's what a lot of guys get wrong is they think that, uh, you know, I can't, I can't be angry uh, I can't be sad. You know, I can't cry. I can't show emotion. Guys, whether you believe in God or you think that we've been evolved into who we are over hundreds of thousands of years, it doesn't really matter. The reality is that we all have emotion. We all experience emotion, anger, joy, pain, happiness, sorrow, grief, all of these things. And none of these emotions are bad. There is, no, there is no negative emotion. They're all there to serve us. And so the analogy I use is uh, the, uh, the, the gauges on a dashboard. You know, if you're driving down the road and you look at your, your fuel gauge and it says you're empty, are you going to be pissed off? Like, damn, this fuel gauge is broken. No, you're not going to do that. You're going to say, oh, I'm low on gas. Uh, there's a gas station a mile ahead. I think I'll take the exit and I'll put in gas in the vehicle and then I'll get back on the highway and I'm off to the races. And mm-hmm. that's why you have those indicators on the dashboard so that you can 
you know, maintain your, your course and do what's right. Well, our emotions are the same way. When you feel angry, you shouldn't be upset that you feel angry or try to hide it. You should try to acknowledge, well, why do I feel angry? Well, I feel angry because I feel underappreciated. Okay. Well, why do you feel underappreciated? Maybe you've, you've failed to communicate effectively the, the, the contributions that you add or, or whatever, but it's going to lead you to an action, not just wallow in the emotion that you may be dealing with. I've actually thought a lot about this because it seems that so many men are, especially today, are not particularly fluent with their emotions, what they're for, and they fall into the trap of, um, and I think this describes many men, they fall into the trap of either suppressing their emotions and not allowing themselves to feel it, or they become what a creator on Instagram, I love this term, they become a flow boy, where they just kind of, they, they're too, they feel too much of their emotions, their, their emotions they don't know how to contain them. And so they kind of live in this overtly emotional state. And so you have men that are very suppressed in their emotions and men that are suppressed by their emotions, I suppose you might say. And so I think that I look at both of those as a lack of fluency of speaking the language of emotions. So, because when you look at the fuel gauge on the dashboard, that's the language of your car trying to communicate something important to you through, you know, through that's, that's what that's for. And so emotions are meant to communicate things to us, but we don't know how to speak that language as men today. And so I've only lived in this era. I don't know what it was like to live in eras past. So I don't know if men were more fluent with their emotions, but I don't think that they, I don't think they were, um, they lacked the fluency that we have today. And so I, I, what I want to check out with you, because I've been playing with this idea, is it because that men lack brothers to help them experience their emotion besides. So like men are more isolated and so they have to adapt to their emotions. However, their fathers or their families relate to emotions versus when men had brothers and were initiated, let's say, they had men around them to model different ways of relating to their emotions and help them learn to speak that language. I, I don't know exactly what it is. I imagine it's a combination of that and then also a generation of young men being raised by women. Mm-hmm. Frankly, you know, where women are general, I'm generally speaking here, but women mm-hmm. are generally more emotional in nature. They're going to listen to that side of their intellect more than maybe logic or reason. I know people are mm-hmm. going to take that out of context, but wow. that generally that tends to be the reality. And there's a beautiful place for that. You know, I love my wife and she brings a, an element of, of nurturing and listening to the emotion and, 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 and that sort of response more so than I can. And I bring a different stimulus to the conversation and the way that we raise our children and both are, are very needed. So I don't know exactly what it is, but what I found, uh, is that we have failed, whether it's in past generations or currently have failed to recognize that there's a gap or a distance between our emotion and our response to the set emotion. Mm -hmm. So, uh, let's say for example, a man gets pissed, uh, at uh, something within his family and his wife does something that he doesn't like or, or he gets upset about, or maybe he gets some jealousy or something. And so he gets angry about that. Right. And so what does he do? He punches the wall or worse. He punches her. Plenty mm-hmm. of men have done that too. Both are wrong by the way. And so you'll ask a guy about this. Hey, why did you punch the wall? And he said, because I'm angry. There's the problem. Mm-hmm. You think that anger is manifested in punching things, in hitting things. And guys, by the way, I've punched holes in the wall before. 
I did it as a young man. I've done it as a grown adult. It's been years and years since I've done it because I recognize what I'm about to share with you, that there is a gap between your emotion and your response. You can be angry and not punch the wall. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. possible. So emotion might be that I'm angry and your react, one reaction is punch the wall. Another reaction might be, oh, why am I angry? Because she didn't appreciate what I bring to the table. Maybe I should talk with her about that. And that's another reaction to the anger, right? Mm -hmm. One is going to serve you well, which is, hey, I want to talk with her maturely about, hey, I'm angry because uh, you went out tonight and uh, with your girlfriends uh, and you didn't communicate with that, me, that with me. And so that makes me feel underappreciated uh, that you don't care about. And I get a little worried because I love you and I care about you and I want to make sure you're safe and you didn't communicate with Matt, that with me. So I'm angry about that. And then she explains your situation and you say, look, I understand. Like, let's just make sure that in the future, if you want to go out with your girls, that you tell me and you include me in the process. And she says, okay. <laughs> like, how amazing is that, right? Mm -hmm. The other reaction is that she comes home and you punch mm -hmm. holes in the walls and you yell at her and you turn into a little bitch. And, and then is that going to help your cause? No, you drove her further away. Now she's scared of you. She thinks less of you, certainly. Your influence is diminished. Your authority is undermined. And it has nothing to do with, well, it has a little bit to do with your emotion, but it has more to do with the reaction of your emotion versus the emotion itself. So what I would suggest to men who are dealing with these so-called negative emotions, anger, greed, jealousy, resentment, bitter, all this kind of stuff is creating margin and space between your emotion and your reaction. And the greater the emotion you feel, the greater the distance or the margin needs to be. So if you're really, really worked up and you're fired up, then you might need a day or two to really figure out what's going on before you react. Mm-hmm. If it's just something that slightly bothers you, maybe your wife said something in passing or your kid said something that you felt was disrespectful and it's just slight, then you can address that there because you're not emotionally charged. You're like, hey, you know what? Hey, son, you said this thing to me and I don't appreciate the way that you're talking to me. You need to remember that you're my son and I'm the father and this is the dynamic between the relationship. So when I ask you to do a chore, I expect you not to give me any lip or roll your eyes. I expect you to say, yes, sir, and get the job done. See, mm -hmm. I didn't get emotional about it. I responded appropriately, but I didn't allow the emotion to dictate it. I allowed the reaction, the response to dictate it. I hope that makes some sense, but there's a, there's a, there's a gap between emotion and reaction. We need to figure out what that balance is. No, that's, that's really important because what you articulate is it's a skill. It's a skill that needs to be learned. Is, I think of it sort of maybe like a three-part skill because it's one that I've had to learn, which is you know once I began encountering my emotions because I went through a very long period of time where I was completely cut off from them. And so it's like, okay, what is it that I'm feeling? What is the emotion that I'm feeling? And then, okay, can I, can I, can, can I contain it long enough to, in order to, to uh, let the charge die down and so that I don't act or speak? And then so I can sit with the emotion, I can contain it, and then I can say, well, what, does, what is this emotion asking for? What does it need? Because a different emotion is indicating different things. So that's what I mean, learning to speak the language. Say so it's asking for this, and then to go about doing it in a, in, a, in a rational and thoughtful way. 
And so that's a that's a set of three skills that kind of needs to be learned. And it doesn't invalidate the emotions, which is, you know, it's going to be easy for a lot of men to say, I shouldn't be feel, feeling that way, so I'm not going to feel that way. It's like, well, no, you do feel that way. And that's okay. Just don't act or speak unskillfully from it and know that maybe the emotion means I'm angry. And in order to get the anger charge out, you know, to be able to work with it, you go and you hit the heavy bag, you do something productive with it, you go and you work in the yard or something like that, or whatever the emotion is to give it space to vent, like energy surges up through the body, go and release the overwhelming amount of the energy. And then so you can sit with it and say, well, what what do I actually need to address this emotion? What is it trying to tell me? What is this light on the dashboard trying to say? And what do I need to do about it? And that's a series of skills that's, you know, can be very difficult, that can be, that needs to be learned, that can be learned, that can be mastered. And, but it has to be done. And this is, this is why I, I, I kick the idea around is that I think it has to be done in a masculine way, because I think the way that men relate to their emotions is different from the way that women relate to their emotions. Uh, and, and I think that that's okay. It's not a better or worse than it's just different, sort of somewhat different beings in relation to the emotions. And so men need to learn how to do that in a masculine way and being raised by women who relate to their emotions in a different way, a man trying to relate to his emotions as if he's a woman is not going to work out well. Similarly, a man not relating to his emotions at all is also not going to work out well. So how can we as men learn to teach other men to relate to their emotions as men is is the idea that I kick around. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's a primary difference between men and women, and I'm speaking in broad generalities. Sure, Of, of Of course, we have men who are maybe more feminine in nature and we have women yeah. who are more masculine in nature, but generally the difference is, is, uh, uh, women are more, uh, inward oriented. Ref- I would say maybe reflective oriented, mm-hmm. you know, they, they will think in their own heads. They'll actually talk with other women. You'll see this. They'll talk with other women in circles, fit, like physically they'll be in circles and they'll talk with each other and they'll be introspective. Mm-hmm. How do I feel? Mm-hmm. What, how am I going to process this? And it's very inward, internally focused. And men, I believe, generally are more externally focused. Well, I feel like shit. So what do I need to do? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So women will be like, I feel crappy. So uh, I need to process these emotions internal. I feel like shit. So I need to go out and hit the punching bag. External focus for men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I think would be really good for women to do is for them to get together with other women and talk and communicate and process and figure mm-hmm. out and come up with a plan of action. And what I think men should do is get together with other men and go find a common objective or a worthy pursuit so that we stand shoulder to shoulder. So mm-hmm. it might be as simple as starting a basketball league every Wednesday night and mm-hmm. saying, Hey guys, like, we're going to start a basketball league. Uh, we're going to compete with other guys in the community. We're going to get, you know, 10 of us and do five on five at the, at the, at the local, you know, park every Wednesday night. And we're going to work together. We're going to communicate and we're going to try to win this competition by processing all of the stimulus that we experience. Mm-hmm. So again, women are very internally introspective and then men are externally introspective, meaning they're focused on what is going on in the outside world and how can we affect change. It's very important to know because if we can start a bowling league or a basketball league, uh, or we can get together and we can go to the shooting range, or you know, one thing that's actually worked very well for men in my experience is, hey, let's just watch the fights together. 
Mm-hmm. You know, let's pull up UFC and it's uh, every once a month we have USC fight night and all the guys come over. We have chips and salsa and we have some drinks if that's your thing. And we're going to watch the fights and we're going to talk about stuff and we're going to have a great conversation. That's going to be significantly better for men than it is to sit around in a circle, a prayer type circle and sing Kumbaya and talk about each other's problems. I'm not saying that's wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that's more of a feminine approach than it is a masculine approach. And if we can recognize the distinction between the two, we'll be more appropriate or able to appropriately uh, respond to, to what we're dealing with. Hi, everyone. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Ryan Mickler. This will be my final announcement. At the end of October in Orlando, Florida, I'll be speaking at the 21 convention, the world's premier event for men and masculinity. As you've heard, the conference has added the 21 convention patriarchs event, especially for husbands and fathers, as well as the 22 convention for women. And this year, I'll be speaking at both the 21 convention and the 22 convention. At 21, I'll be talking to men about the power of shame in our lives and my guidance for how to overcome it. The title of my talk is Waking Up on the Battlefield. And at the 22 convention, I'll be explaining how, in the words of Alison Armstrong, we aren't just hairy versions of women and why what we're doing across the hall matters. And I'll be joining a huge and expanding list of accomplished speakers, including Ian Smith of Attila's Gym in New Jersey, Jack Donovan, Pastor Michael Foster, Tanner Guzzi, Alexander Cortez, Dr. Sean T. Smith, Elliot Hulse, Socrates, lawyer Melissa Isaac, YouTuber Jennifer Molesky, plus more than I can even list. In the description, I've provided links to all of the 21 Summit events, or you can visit the21convention.org and enter the code WILLS25 at checkout for 25% off any ticket price, including to the 22 Convention. I recommend the VIP tickets, which includes five-night on-site stay in the hotel's lovely rooms, which I've personally seen, front-of-house reserved seating, an exclusive VIP-only dinner with the speakers, and more. There you can meet me in person, along with 10, yes, 10 members of my incredible Renaissance of Men team from around the country, and even one from the UK. Also, all tickets are bring a friend free. That's right, if it's the first time your friend has attended any of the conferences, they can come with you free of charge. Click the links in the description for each of the 21 events and enter the code WILLS25 for 25% off any ticket. Prices will continue to go up the closer we get to the conference, and I only have a limited number of these discounts left, so act now to secure the lowest price. Also, I'll be taking a couple-week break after this podcast to prepare for both my talks, so this will be your last reminder. Get on it. Thanks so much, and let's get back to the podcast with Ryan Mickler. I love that because I've started leading a men's group here in Phoenix, co-leading. And so the the leader of the men's group, um, he will text me with different ideas and I always respond to him, okay, I'm into that as long as the group itself doesn't just become a bunch of men sitting around and talking about our feelings. It needs to be grounded in some sort of, some sort of action, you know, mm-hmm. because I've, there are plenty of those groups that are just, let's just sit around and talk about our feelings. And I always have felt that that can be very productive for a lot of men to have a space to encounter their feelings. But then it's like, well, what are you going to do with this? So we've acknowledged that you now feel the way that you feel. Good, good, we got there. Now, where are you going to take this into your life and make measurable changes? Because simply sitting and feeling it isn't going to get you there. You know, this is there's some situation that's generating this emotional response. And now that you've you've experienced the emotion, you know what it's trying to tell you. 
is trying to tell you to do something with it. So beyond any emotional experience for the sake of it, what actions are you going to take? Similarly, as you describe women uh, working with their own emotions, I have trouble imagining a group of women sitting around, um, I don't know, brunch or something like that, and, and talking about something. And then one of the one of the ladies saying, you know, we should all go do, let's all go play basketball now and work through our emotions. Like, I just don't picture <laughs> right. I don't picture that. Right. right. It's comical. It's comical to right. imagine it, right? So, and that's the thing. So, I, I really like that, that shade of nuance that there is an internal versus an external focus with dealing with these emotional issues. And let's be very clear, neither one are wrong. You know, I'm, I'm right. when I That's say this, right. I'm not trying to diminish or downplay the way women process their emotions at all. Mm-hmm. But look, I mean, as a husband, I mean, we've all had that conversation with her wife where she's had a bad day uh, at work or with the kids. My wife stays at home. She's a, she's a homemaker, full-time homemaker and housekeeper uh, and, and, and mother to our children, of course. And mm-hmm. so she'll tell me about her bad day and I'm like, oh, cool. Let's do X, Y, and Z. And she's like, well, I don't want you, I'm, I'm not telling you to solve it. I just want to tell you. Okay. Well, okay. Like I now, because I'm a mature man, I understand that. And I can, because I'm a mature man, I can listen. In fact, oftentimes I'll ask her, do you want me to help you work through some Mm -hmm. solutions or would you rather just me listen? And she'll say, I, you know, just listen to me and I can do that. Mm -hmm. I can do that. It's hard. It's really hard. It shouldn't be as hard as it is, but it is. (laughs) Uh, and I'm like, you know, the best, here's a great phrase for you guys. Oh, that, that must be hard. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, that does really suck. Like whatever verbiage she mm-hmm. uses. I had a right. hard day. Oh, hon, yeah, that does sound like a hard day. Mirroring. Period. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had this fight with my mom. Oh, man, that must be hard. And inside <laughs> I'm like, well, stop talking to your mom. <laughs> Or like, don't talk to your mom about that. Or why is your mom acting like that? Like, that's my thought. But I can Mm -hmm. say, oh yeah, that must be hard. Because that's what she needs from me. And I'm not, I'm not mocking her, by the way. Mm -hmm. Like, I genuinely, like, this is what she needs from me. She needs me to say, oh man, I'm sorry. That must be really hard. I'm not diminishing her, her, her feeling. Like, I don't think it's hard, but if she thinks it's hard, well, perception is reality, right? So I'm not dismi- mm-hmm. d- dismissing it. So yes, this is, this is what, again, women need. Let them reflect, be a sounding board for them. And then you find other guys who you can go out and, and work through these. And again, neither one is, is right or wrong. It's just, it's just the way we work. And once mm-hmm. you acknowledge and recognize that, then you can come up with an appropriate course of action. Mm-hmm. And if you can, and and if and when you make it work in your own home with your own with your own partner, it works beautifully because the very same emotions, you know that that uh, that your partner, not necessarily you, but any man listening, including you, um, is experiencing that. Oh, that must be hard. Those very same emotions are what are what enable the creation of beauty in a home. Or in a relationship, because the, those emotions are a source of power, and so when those emotions come up, and they're say we'll call them, um, we'll say difficult emotions instead of negative emotions. When those difficult emotions come up, that's the same. That's the same function. That's the that's the easier emotions that create beauty and joy, and it's the same flow of energy through. It just happens to be coming through in a couple different flavors, I guess. And to be able to work with that, you know, with the the, the uh, uh, your partner, a woman's emotional nature, and to be able to um, 
to be able to sit in it, I suppose, depending on how on, on, on how we want to phrase it. But you know, to be able to experience it, it can actually be a source of great joy, uh, and and I think allows the relationship to flourish. You know, where those two partners can come into relationship. Because I would imagine that uh, I'm not in a, uh, a partnership, not married, or in a, I have a girlfriend right now. But I would imagine that you know, for for women listening, there's also challenging things about their their male partners to say being so direction action oriented that they have to learn to adapt to. Um, and so when those two things can come into alignment, that can be incredibly powerful for a partnership and for kids and for a home. And that's how a healthy home works, it seems to me. Um, that's that, How could it work any other way? Yeah. Well, one of the things, things my wife does is she does canning, like food preservation. Mm-hmm. So she'll can peaches and tomatoes and green beans and peas and tomatoes. Dilly and beans. Things. Dilly beans. You've had some of my wife's dilly beans, I think. <laughs> I've got a jar up there. <laughs> That's right. So um, it, it's interesting. The process is actually very interesting. And I'm going to butcher it here. So for those of you who do any sort of food <laughs> preservation, you, you're going to mock me here. But I, I think the point still holds true. So basically what she'll do, is she'll pre- prepare her the food, whatever it is. And then she'll put it into a jar and she'll put the you know water or vinegar or the combination, whatever, whatever. I don't know what it is. Whatever she puts it in there. And then she the seals the lid. She, yeah, the magic. Yep. She, the love, right? She closes the lid and she puts it in this, uh, the steamer and the steamer is designed to vacuum seal the, the lid onto the, the can itself, the jar. And so she'll set it to a ter- certain temperature and she'll set it for a certain time. And then it'll start steaming and it'll vacuum seal this thing. Well, on the top of the steamer, there's a little valve. And the valve is a, a release valve so that when the pressure builds up, it releases a little bit of pressure so they can hold the right amount of pressure to, to do what it's intended to do. But without that valve, the, the steamer itself on the stove would quite literally become a bomb, right? So mm-hmm. much pressure that mm-hmm. it would explode in the kitchen. It would kill us. <laughs> so it has yeah. this, little, this little steam valve. And as the temperature and or the pressure gets too high, the steam valve opens and it lets a little pressure off. Uh, T does the same thing. It's like the little whistle. It's a little pressure mm-hmm. valve that comes out and that whistling and telling you like it's hot and that's the pressure. But you need to have that pressure valve there because if you didn't, you'd create this bomb. And so everybody, whether you're a man or a woman, has to have this pressure valve. And again, we go back to this. Women, women their pressure valve is let's talk about it. That's their vent. Let's talk about it. I need to talk about this. I need to process this. I need to, to work through this. That's their vent. And men's vent is like, I need to be action oriented. I need to go play basketball. I need to go to the shooting range. I need to uh, go to jujitsu. I need to do something. I need to physically move in order to have this little valve release some of the pressure I'm dealing with. And again, neither are right or wrong. It just is what it is for you. And the sooner you can find what it is, the less likely you are to become this bomb that's just waiting to explode and destroy everything in your path. This is this is great. This is really helpful for me because in the past I've you know I've really benefited from talk therapy. I'm a very verbally actuated kind of guy. I enjoy talking, and I I how do I know what I think until I hear myself say it? Kind of guy sometimes. And but at the same time, I recognize that when I've really needed to work through things, it hasn't been like, oh, let me call up my guy friends and work through it with them. It's like, no, I'm going to go out and do a thing. Maybe I'll go for a run or go to the gym and that will help me first before I really need to, in case I need to talk through something because I don't need to talk through everything. So really, I really like that because I've always, I've always wondered like, well, I've really benefited from talking. And actually, I don't know if you know the, the podcast, uh, uh, Jeff Putnam, 
um, Rugged Legacy. Yeah. He's on he's yeah, on Twitter. I was on his podcast and he came at me pretty hard about this. And I'm like, well, no, it just works for me because we were having a similar conversation about men being kinetically oriented versus talking oriented. I said, well, I've actually gotten a lot from talking, but I recognize now that in addition to the talking, that was never the first thing that I did. The first thing I did was I go... I would go and, and do some exercise usually in some in some particular way or do a thing. And then I would be able to talk it out. So you kind of, and there are cases where, at least in my case, where I needed both. But what I did first is to your point, it's like, this is how we go solve problems is kinetically through action, not just for talking, but both have their place. Yeah, again, neither are right or wrong. Well, it's mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, me as somebody who quite literally talks for a living because of our <laughs> podcast and movement, I actually don't solve problems that way. You know, mm-hmm. like, and, and I thought about it this weekend. Uh, a lot of the times I, I, my energy actually is diminished after long conversations. And mm-hmm. this is not a knock will on our conversation, but I will be more <laughs> tired on our con- after our conversation than I will of an hour and a half of jujitsu. Like mm-hmm, I, I just sure. know through experience fit one's physically one's mental and emotional and i'm going to be more depleted of my energy after our conversation than i will be after an hour and a half of jujitsu mm-hmm. because that's just my personality I, I tend to be more introverted by nature and i know where my energy derives and where it doesn't where my energy is de- drained versus where i can build up energy and so even in conversations i, I get very very tired quickly of the conversations that are like just pontificating on all of the stuff without giving us a very clear direction of what to move forward. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I constantly finding myself when I listen to podcasts, like, why the hell are you talking about this? Like, what's the point? Like, give me the yeah. point. What do I need mm-hmm. to go do? Like, tell me what to do and I'll go do it. But there has to be a reason for this conversation. Otherwise, why in the world are we having it? And mm-hmm. that's what I know about myself. I know not everybody works like that. Uh, but if you work like that, you know exactly what I'm saying, how just gassed. I'll go to networking functions or events and I'm just completely spent. This last weekend when we had our legacy event, my wife's like, why are you so tired? Like, because I talked the entire time. She's mm-hmm. like, why does that make you tired? I'm like, because it's exhausting. It's draining. And she doesn't quite get it because she, she sees that side of it for herself. But it's very interesting. You got to know yourself. Well, it's, it, there's something, and I can, believe me, I can relate. I was on a four hour, I was, I was a guest on a podcast and we ended up talking for four hours. And yeah. It was I'm great. I had a that. wonderful, yeah, no, I mean, I love, <laughs> I loved it, but I was gassed. I was absolutely yes. exhausted afterwards. Right. So there's something very, very taxing about talking about getting the brain and the mouth to work and sync in real time, very taxing thing versus like you get on the mat with someone, you get in the ring with someone and you feel energy coming back at you. It sort of reinvigorates because you're not doing it alone, right? There's energy. You put energy into into it and energy comes back out versus talking. You know, it it, it doesn't quite work the same way. We can dig into why, but that's a whole separate. Maybe it does though, actually. Like, isn't a conversation just a give and a take? Like, I give energy, you give energy. Jiu-Jitsu, I give energy, you get, like, they're, they're both, it's a both a give and take relationship. It's just a different kind of fuel and you got to figure out what fuel you run best on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does it, does it make a difference that there's microphones involved? Like, could you talk to someone in person, like a buddy for four hours without, you know, or for some extended period of time? Not, not me personally. Okay. I, I don't, I don't know that it matters. Like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to sit and talk with even my dearest friends for that long of time without being drained. 
Like it's just okay, not going to happen for me. That's an important distinction because when you're up on stage or when you're recording a podcast, there's a performance aspect to it. So it's, you know, the, the, there's a, you have to be on, especially when giving a, a talk to a bunch of guys that have come out to the farm, which I'm actually want to have some questions about versus like, if you're just hanging out and talking to buddies, you know, privately, that's a very different thing. If that's draining, then that's an, then that's an important indication of like your own personal makeup, right? And it's important versus yes, like recording a four hour podcast and having to express thoughts clearly for four hours, like absolutely exhausting. And the give back from that comes when it gets posted and people post nice comments. That's the energy put in and coming back, but maybe it doesn't come back in the moment. Well, to me, it comes back from knowing that I'm doing a good thing and that I'm serving other people. And if Mm -hmm. we were to strip away everything else of what I feel my responsibility is, it's to serve. And serving other people does not come without sacrifice. Like Mm -hmm. I, I can't serve Will you or people who are listening or me when I do a podcast or have an audience. I can't serve those individuals without some sort of sacrifice on my own. Because if you're giving to other people, you have to give of what you have. And and if you're not giving of what you have, is it really, are you really giving anything? No, you're not giving anything. Like there's no sacrifice there. So mm-hmm. yeah, even, even in conversations that I'm having, I am, I am consciously and deliberately depleting my own energy source because I feel that that's going to be valuable for other people. And I personally derive a personal sense of satisfaction from adding value to other people's lives. So even though it's challenging, I'm willing to do it because of how meaningful and significant it is to me. This is the intrinsic value of the thing that we were talking about earlier. Like the very act that you're going through of delivering value has, is intrinsically valuable for you. It is, but also I know that there's a reward, there's a payoff. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't do the podcast just a podcast. The reward could come in the form of monetary compensation. It could come in some sense of uh, validation potentially of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be derived from knowing that somebody's going to take this information uh, and apply it and then they're going to salvage their marriage or they're going to pull 500 pounds on their deadlift uh, or they're going to start a business and there's some sort of uh, sense of honor and pride and satisfaction for me that comes with that. So I don't know that the podcast is intrinsically valuable as much as I know that there's going to be some sense of progress and growth and expansion and improvement in other people's lives. And there's value in that for me. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's just a, uh, it's just a reciprocal exchange of value. I share with you my thoughts, you get value from it. You, you improve your life, or maybe you send me a text and tell me how it improved your life. And that's my reward. Uh, And it's a win-win relationship for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So sort of like a, the conversation is in, in the very literal sense of the meaning, it's work, not like, oh, it's work to do this thing. It's like, no, this is my job. This is, I do this. And so the, the reward is not necessarily in the conversation itself, but in the effects that it has, because that is your job. And when we take on our jobs, we don't always like the work. We don't always get energy from the work itself, but the doing of the work feeds into the system. And then the system feeds back into us, not necessarily directly in terms of like, the energy we're feeling in the moment, but energy in the form of money or progress or a, or a, a text from somebody or something like the feeling of having an impact. So that's the, that's the give back aspect of it is, is in the job of it, I guess. Well, every, every relationship is a give and take. Like how, how long are you going to stay in a relationship that's just give, 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 right. and that other party never gives you anything? You're not going to stay in that for very long. So every relationship I have, whether it's my intimate relationship with my wife or my children or 
the relationship will that you and I have, it's going to be a give and take. And if it isn't mm-hmm. like, I'm going to learn that lesson pretty quickly and I'm going to stop giving you my time and attention and energy because you're not willing to reciprocate it. So there's a level mm-hmm. of trust that comes with it. And I try to afford everybody a baseline level of respect. If I knew nothing else about you, Will, but you reached out to me and said, hey, can I have you on the podcast? Here's what I do. I'd give you a baseline level of respect until you mm-hmm. proved to me that you were unworthy of that respect, in which case I would shut it off. But if you want above and beyond my baseline level of respect, then that has to be earned. And there's a lot of different ways to earn that in my life. And you will have earned that because you've been out to my place and you've interacted with my family. We've broken bread together, but you've gone above and beyond that baseline level of respect. But there is a give and take. And I ain't going to play the game very long if you're not willing to give more than you Mm -hmm. take. It's always about adding more value than you detract from any environment and situation. And by the way, I am detracting. Even in this, there's little things that I'm taking away from you, right? I'm borrowing a little bit of your credibility and authority being here. That's a take, right? Mm. But in order to be uh, worthy of that take, I need to add a, at least the same amount, if not more, to be able to pull those withdrawals from your own uh, relationship or credibility bank account. And I hope I'm doing that. Um, but but you got to look at relationships that way. Well, thank you, Ryan. I, I appreciate all of that and and this and and everything that you said. Thank you. And uh, I would say a big component of that is reputation. You know, reputation is how, you know, a man comes into an environment of people that are unfamiliar with him largely. And, but his ability to in, interact in a give and take way is that's, is that not the nature of someone's reputation? Like, yeah, this is a, this is a good guy. He'll come in and I, tr- you know, I trust Ryan because we'll trust Ryan. And so Ryan comes in, so he has a reputation and we'll trust Ryan because they have a good give and take. And is, is that, could that be the very nature of reputation to know that men are, effectively able to participate in a good and take a give and take and bring more, you know, produce more than they consume in a relationship, maybe even. Yeah. Because we've all had friends who take more than they give. Mm-hmm. And how long do you trust that person? Not very long. Would you, would you recommend that person to a friend? No. Right. You'd recommend that person to a to an enemy for sure, <laughs> you know, but yeah. you wouldn't recommend that person to somebody you deeply care about. So but you would if they were if they were if they had proven themselves worthy of adding value to a relationship. So, yeah, I think that's the path. Frankly, that I mean, like if you strip everything else away, that's the path of success: is add more value than you extract. You know, if I want a client, for example, let's so we've got our Iron Council. That's our exclusive brotherhood. Um, it's it's ninety seven dollars a month. So here's the interesting thing about voluntary exchange of value. It could be monetary, like the example I'm going to share with you, or it could just be uh, nonverbal, or it could be some sort of emotional benefit. But let's just take it in a in a voluntary uh, monetary transaction. So when guys join our Iron Council, they're going to pay our organization ninety seven dollars a month. And here's the interesting thing about this, and this proves that it's all relative and it's subjective. In order for somebody to pay me $97 a month, they have to believe that the value they're going to receive is worth more than $97 a month. Mm -hmm. Well, I should say it's going to be equal to or more than $97 a month. If they only think, well, the value I'm only going to get from this is $67, they're not going to pay me $97 for it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's what they believe. They believe that paying $97 a month, they're going to get more than $97. Conversely, I 
is the one charging $97 a month. I believe that the value I'm giving is actually less than the $97 a month. Because if I mm-hmm. believed it was more than $97 a month, I, I would charge more than $97 a month, right? That's profit, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a very interesting paradox here. In order to have mm-hmm. some sort of... Oh, so here's another example. We're on this podcast together. I personally, being on this podcast, have to believe that I'm going to get more from it, equal to or more from it than I'm going to give. Mm-hmm. Right? If I'm going to spend right now, we're at what? An hour and a half. I have to wow. believe that, that I'm going to get more out of this hour and a half than what I get, than the hour and a half I'm giving you. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. And you have to believe that, that you're the same thing with your time, right? That you're going to get more out of it than you're giving. This is the weird thing about voluntary exchange. Mm-hmm. And it's voluntary and it's subjective. It proves that it's subjective. Our time is worth different. And also what we value is different. Mm-hmm. I value mm-hmm. my hour and a half differently than you value your hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's really, really important that we understand this in a free market generally, I should say generally free market society, that, right. that, that we are not, here, here's how I determine wealth, for example. Wealth is... Uh, a it is basically a measurement of perceived value. Perceived right? value so, delivered, right? Uh, delivered, sure. Yeah, I would say yeah. that. Yeah, but it's just a measurement of perceived value. And guess who gets to determine how much I'm worth? Is it me? No. <laughs> it's the person I want to pay me. They are the one who gets to determine what I'm worth. Now, I mm-hmm. might set my rates... But ultimately, that doesn't mean anything if nobody's willing to pay the rate. So it's a measurement of perceived value. And I like what you said, delivered, right? If I don't mm-hmm. deliver it, then there's no value added. So that's why I don't add delivered because perceived value means that I actually gave you what you were looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't even know how we got off on that tangent. But I, I really no. am interested in this like value proposition and the exchange of give and take and value added or deducted and exchanged. It's a very fascinating thing to me. Well, this is great. I'm really glad that you took it here because this is, this is the direction that I wanted to go with it. And what comes to mind uh, for me is um, your friends over at Origin. Because when I came, mm-hmm. up to ha- I came up to Maine to hang out with you and your family, I also went and I talked to Pete. And I went into the Origin store and I was re- remembering the conversation that I had with Pete. And he said that when you buy into Origin, uh, when you buy whether jeans or hoodies or boots or, uh, or or the other products that make Jocko fuel stuff like that, you're you're buying into a vision, and buying into a vision, buying into an idea is something very subjective. You can't actually put a price tag on it. Like so, for example, I bought a, a great pair of uh, I think it's the Delta jeans, which I really love. So I really like those jeans. There's the material cost of the jeans that I paid for, however however much it was, but the jeans they meant more to me than simply something to cover my legs. In a in a stylish in a stylish and comfortable way, right? They, they meant to me that I was buying into something larger, some sort of renewed vision of manufacturing in America, and I really mean that. And that's why I was really happy to buy the jeans and the boots because I was buying into a vision. The vision is is something subjective, right? That I personally assign the value to, right? And so I would say that I would pay X amount for the jeans and for the boots, but the value that's delivered for me is more than just 
the, you know, the quality of the craftsmanship and all this stuff, the value that's delivered for me is participating in a larger vision for America. And so in that way, to your point, I felt in, I felt in buying the jeans, the cost of them was low. It was was lower than the total value received. And that's a very subjective thing. And that like, yeah. And that, that was a really cool thing. But that's like, you can't actually put a price tag on it. And if you were to say, well, you know, the value of buying in the manufacturing in America would be two X the cost. You know, then then I then I feel like the the value delivered to me wouldn't have been quite the same. I'm not quite sure how that math works out, um, but I think yeah, you understand well, what I mean. I do. And another example would be there might be somebody who listens who listens and says, I, I don't know how much those jeans are. Let's just say hypothetically, for the sake of argument, they're 150. dollars I don't even know, but let's yeah, say they're 150. dollars Okay, it's not that much. But yeah. Well, no, but even that, what you're saying right now, yeah. even that's subjective. It's not that much. What does that even mean? It's, it's, oh, it's not less that than, much. It's, it's objectively less than a hundred dollars. But but when you said it's not that much, even that's a subjective term. Oh, but I'm, I don't want anyone to think that Origin jeans are like a hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> okay, so what you're saying is they're less. Okay, so let's say they're hundred. Okay, the, the the number doesn't matter. It's arbitrary for for the sake right. of this conversation. But let's right. say they're hundred dollars. Okay, but when 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 people say, well, that's not that's that's actually very cheap. Cheap to who? That's subjective. But it's <laughs> neither right. cheap nor expensive. Like I don't, because what you're saying is like, I'll pay a hundred dollars for a pair of jeans. I'll get a pair of jeans. And then I get to buy into this American story. Mm-hmm. And that's valuable to you. Now there might be somebody who's just as right, by the way, who comes and says, well, you know, Will, I buy my jeans at Target and they're $20. And I believe in being frugal. Mm-hmm. And so therefore I paid $20 for my jeans and I can take my $80 and I can go uh, take my family to dinner, uh, to a very nice dinner uh, once a month. Mm -hmm. Are they wrong? No, they're, they're Mm -hmm. right too. Like that's the weird thing about this is we're not right or wrong. It's just what you value uh, and, and where you're willing to exchange value and how you, how you, quantify the value being added and what is important to you and what isn't important to you. Maybe frugality is, maybe frugality is not important. Maybe vanity is, that could be a Mm -hmm. thing. Maybe American made is important and maybe being a part of an international conglomeration is important. There's so many things that could be important, but you got to figure out what's valuable to you and then make your decisions based on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You have to you have to determine your values and make your purchasing decision based on your values. And it's it's cool that a company like Origin exists or like the Order of Man exists, where where men can learn that they can actually in in spending money, you're you're expressing your values. You're not just like dropping cash on something. It's like no, the way that you spend your money is the way that you express your values, and you have to be, let's say, intentional about that. And then that's how you get the the rewards you're looking for versus just casually. It's just like, oh, just it's good enough. You know, and this is mm-hmm. this is Tanner Guzzi's whole thing, you know, with this whole thing about style and fashion is not fashion, but about style, about, you know, you, the way that you spend your money on the clothes, your clothes reflect your values in some very important ways to men who know how to speak that language and to learn to be intentional about it. So to, you know, to bring in another man who's in this whole, uh, you know, self-development space you know, who makes a very powerful contribution. Like, no, be deliberate with the way you look, express, learn what your values are, learn to express them in the, in your clothing and how powerful that can be for men. Or at least acknowledge it. Like you're doing That's it true. subconsciously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, yes. T- and Tanner would agree to this is like, cause you'll have a lot of guys that be like, real men don't care how they look. Well, just the <laughs> fact that you're saying that 
means that you actually care. Because uh, yeah. you remember in the, it must have been late 80s, early 90s, the whole grunge scene. Sure, of course. You had, you had Pearl Jam and Nirvana and, you know, this whole art- alternative rock scene. And the whole goal was to look like you didn't care. Mm-hmm. But buying the faded out jeans with the holes and the ratty flannel from the Goodwill was actually very intentional. Mm-hmm. So let's not pretend that we're that we're, we're we're nihilistic about it. Like we all care. So at least acknowledge that you care because now you're operating from reality. But there's a lot of guys like I don't care about that. Well, if you really didn't care, you actually wouldn't have cared enough to even make a comment about it. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that you commented says that you care more than you're leading on. And by the way, it's okay to care, guys. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay to care about the way that you look. It's okay to care about the way you present yourself. It's okay to care about the way others perceive you to be. There's some very notable, notable players in this in the in the game who are like, I don't know. I I, think, I don't know. I don't just I'm just myself. Okay. Cute. But you also know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. There's a brand, there's a color, there's a scheme, there's, there's a, a, a thread line. Just acknowledge it. It's okay. Like it's fine. Mm-hmm. But we have to pretend like we don't care as if that's some sort of, uh, I don't know, metric of, of manliness. I don't actually don't think that's manliness. I think part of manliness is actually caring about the things that are important to you. Caring enough mm-hmm. that you're willing to invest in it, caring enough that you're willing to acknowledge it, caring enough to figure out uh, on a daily basis where you've fallen short and how you can get better. Like it would be weird to me. It's le- it's in fact it's less manly to to be uh, to to be uncaring uh, or 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 to be indifferent about that. That seems less manly than actually caring about things that are important to you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's. Men used to care a lot. They used to look at the adornments on knights, you know, the way that they would adorn their armor or the big wings, or I've got a Spartan helmet behind me. Like those guys cared how they look. They needed you to know that they were deadly and they were going to kill you and they weren't afraid of you. Like that's, they cared a lot. And so now we have this notion that, nah, I don't, it's, it's manly to not care. It's like, well, it can be more manly, much more manly to care, which reminds me, I wanted to ask, cause you do this great distinction. What is the difference between masculinity and manliness? I've never heard anyone else say this. And I remember we talked about it and so I wanted other men to hear it. Cause I think it's really important. I will address that, but I want to say yes. something. I want to hit on what you just said. Cause you said yeah. we, we, there used to be times when we cared. And what you're saying is that now you're speaking in generalities, but what you're saying is yeah. by, by what you just said is that we care less than we did before. I actually don't think that's true. I think we value mm-hmm. different things. Okay. Like we cared, we care just as much as we've always cared. Let's talk about clothing. Men just care about comfort more than they do about the way that they are perceived. That's it. Like True. you care just as much. You just care about something else. Mm-hmm. And I, and I got to ask, is comfort the ultimate metric? No, safety is, Ryan. Safety is the ultimate metric. Maybe. Like we all get to decide that for ourselves. Uh, right? So you have to decide, like, what is the way that you're showing up saying about the things that you care about? It doesn't mean you don't care. There's nothing you don't care about. You care about mm-hmm. everything. It's just like, what do you care about most? And so most of the time, the way that guys show up and present themselves is just, it's not saying they don't care about style. 
what it's actually saying is they care more about comfort, comfort mm. and convenience than they do about influence with other people. That's all it's saying. Mm -hmm. So yeah. priorities have just shifted. That's it. Mm -hmm. All right. That's a, so yeah. I, I, I want to make sure we hit on that. <clears throat> um, regarding your question about, you were asking about what um, manliness and masculinity and mm -hmm. that's what you're at, the distinction. So I make a distinction between three, three different things primarily. So man, masculinity, and manliness. It's those three things. So mm -hmm. let's talk about man first. I shouldn't have to, but in 2021, <laughs> we do. I know. A man is a biological male. And I should say it this way, an adult biological male. Mm -hmm. a mature biological male. Because for example, my sons are biologically male, but they're not men. We don't even expect them to be because they're young, right? So they're boys, but they're not, they're not men. We don't say they're man, they're a man, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, an adult biological male. If you're a woman who wants to be a man, then you're a woman who wants to be a man. Like you're not a man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're a woman who believes yourself to be a man, then you're a woman who believes yourself to be a man, but you're not a man. Like you have to be right. biologically male. And people will say, well, what about intersex people? That's a medical disorder. Mm -hmm. that, is, that isn't a, a third gender, a third sex. That, isn't, that doesn't make an infinite number of things on the spectrum of man or woman. It just means that that's a medical anomaly, but, but it's mm -hmm. binary. You're a man or you're a woman. You can, right. you can be a masculine man, you can be a feminine man, you can be a masculine woman, you can be a feminine woman, but you're either a man or a woman. That's it. Mm -hmm. Okay. We all clear on that. That's, We're all clear that's on all. that. Okay. Now we have masculinity. <laughs> and masculine. What's that? Yeah, it's crazy. So now yeah. we have masculinity. And masculinity is a set of virtues that we collectively had, have agreed to, 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 to represent men. Like dominance, aggression, stoicism. It's the biological hardwiring. It's the hormones that are coursing through our veins. And that's what makes masculine behavior, which is why you can have women who tend to be more masculine mm -hmm. because they're exhibiting masculine behavior and characteristics. And just because I say that woman is masculine, like CrossFit uh, champions, female CrossFit champions, those are masculine mm -hmm. women. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not undermining them. I'm not saying they're not women. I'm not saying they're inferior. I'm saying they're exhibiting masculine characteristics in order to achieve their desired outcome, but they're still women. They're very mm -hmm. feminine in a lot of ways and they're still women, but they're masculine women. Just the same as I've seen homos a lot of homosexual men, some actually straight men too, who are more feminine in their approach. And, mm -hmm. and you know, those people, I know those people, nothing wrong, but they're still men but they happen to be more feminine because we attribute the characteristics of nurturing and empathy and sympathy and kindness and compassion and those sorts of things as a feminine skill set, a feminine characteristic. So that's what masculinity is. And then you have manliness. And manliness is the ability for a man, a biological man, to harness his masculinity to produce effective outcomes for himself. And other people. So mm -hmm. I can take the concept of masculinity, which is, uh, let's just say physical aggression. Mm -hmm. And if I walk down the street in a, in a, in a crowded neighborhood or, 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 or downtown, and I used 
physical aggression and I just started punching people in the face for no random reason. <laughs> you might say yeah. it's some of my testosterone that's causing me to do that, that that's that physical aggression and dominance, right? Nobody would say that's manly behavior. But on the other hand, if I saw somebody robbing a woman on, on the sidewalk, same neighborhood, I saw him robbing a woman, stealing her purse, and I went up there and I beat the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. Same thing, ma- f- aggression, physical aggression and dominance. But I would consider that manly behavior because you're harnessing your masculinity for productive outcomes for yourself and the people around you, namely this woman who's getting mugged. Mm-hmm. So there's a distinction. So, you have man, you have masculinity, and you have manliness. And they're distinct. They're similar, and there's some veins and threads running through them, but they're distinct. So masculinity is, I guess, in a sense, there's a neutrality to it in that it just is. Either It's either it's something amoral. that you have. It's amoral, exactly. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, and it can be applied productively or, I suppose, counterproductively um, for yourself and others. And that's right. manliness so, is the application. Yes. Yeah. And, and so we start tiptoeing around this idea of toxic masculinity. I got right? my own if take on amoral, that. If it's amoral, then Ryan, aren't you suggesting that it could be used to be toxic? I, I, I would say, I would go so far as to say this, it can be used for less than productive outcomes. Like if I use my physical size to hurt and harm other people, then yeah, that's a problem. That's, a, that's an ineffective and incorrect use of, of my masculine virtues. But I don't use the term toxic masculinity because it's contrived and it's <laughs> manipulated and it's a mm-hmm. tool, it's, it's semantic overload. It's a semantic uh, manipulation tactic to lump all masculinity as toxic. And people will say, well, nobody's doing that. Really? Well, take a look <laughs> at the American Psychological Association who in, I believe, either... 2018 or 2019 came out and flat 19. out said in their quasi study, 19, thank you, quasi study that the, the, the masculine virtues, traditional masculinity, such as stoicism, aggression, physicality, dominance are inherently toxic. Mm-hmm. That's the American Psychological Association. That is mm-hmm. the organization that is responsible for largely determining psychological treatment of individuals in this country. And what they're doing is they're telling young boys that being a, being masculine is inherently toxic, being Mm -hmm. stoic, having aggression, being dominant are inherently toxic. No, they're not. Manliness. If somebody's trying to hurt my family or the people I care about, and I use my masculine virtues to save them, that's not inherently toxic, right? If I, if I get upset about a situation that I might encounter and I decide that instead of reacting solely on my emotions, that I'm going to be calm and clear and level-headed and use my emotions for some feedback, but also use logic and reasoning and bring these other things into the equation, which is synonymous with stoicism. And I use that to produce a better outcome. Is that inherently toxic? Of course it isn't. So I don't like the term toxic masculinity because A, it's a misnomer. Masculinity is not toxic. And B, it's a tool that's wielded by wokesters and those who want to uh, 
mislead people into thinking that men are the enemy, and we certainly are not. Amen. Amen. And I, I would really recommend, uh, I don't know if you follow Sean, Dr. Sean T. Smith on Twitter at all, but he would be an excellent guest to have on your podcast to do a deep dive on this because obviously he's been speaking out very vocally and we, he and I talked about it on my podcast. He, he speaks out very vocally against this because obviously it affects his profession and he goes pretty hard against it. And it's actually what you just said, all those things are absolutely accurate. And it's actually even worse than that because what he says is um, when he and I talked about it was that the way that the guidelines are actually structured is saying that the dominance, aggression, stoicism, stuff like that, that those are the characteristics of masculinity that need to be harnessed to destroy masculinity. That's what the guidelines actually say, is that you need to take all mm. these characteristics that are counterproductive and use them to destroy yourselves so that you can be less masculine. And just the the, the double think, the insanity behind that is just it's very indicative of where we're at. It's like, you know, you're supposed to hate yourself for what you are and use these worst aspects of yourself to destroy yourself as men. And then you will be the ideal man. It's, it's, it, it's, it's mind-numbing and heartbreaking at the same time. And he talks very movingly about it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I guess just my, my, my last question then would be, you know, how do you help men in the Iron Council and in the Order of Man reintroduce them to the concepts of masculinity and manliness? Like what sort of, what sort of, well, let's just say within the Iron Council in particular, like what's going on inside there to the extent that you can share it where the men feel like for they're getting value above and beyond the cost? Is it related to masculinity and manliness? Like are, thing, are these things, say, operationalized um, for the men in that group or what's happening behind the curtain to the extent that you can share it? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, we honor masculinity. I mean, that's the biggest thing. You know, we're, we're in the society right now that tends to diminish and demean and undermine and ridicule and mock masculinity. Whereas we embrace masculinity and we tell men that you shouldn't be less than what you are, that you should actually embrace and become more than you currently are using the masculine virtues and characteristics and skill sets at your disposal for productive outcomes. And then what we do to your point about operationally is that we've created systems and procedures and processes. We have assignments and we have challenges. Uh, we have camaraderie. We have accountability. All of these structures built into place to begin to codify and quantify what it means to be a man and how you can move down this track and improve yourself as a man. Uh, we have guys coming in at varying degrees. Some are dialed in with their fitness. Some are dialed in with their business. Some are lost and completely confused. Others are going through divorces. Some are dealing with drug or alcohol dependency or pornography addiction. And we take guys where they are and we introduce them to a system and processes and tools that will allow them to maximize their life and improve uh, where they want to improve. So we operate in teams. We have weekly calls, we issue challenges, we give them assignments each and every month, and we're having an unbelievably successful track record getting these guys on track and equipping them with the tools they need to thrive. And you just had the legacy event, and I know that you have another event coming up. Are these part of the Iron Council as well? No, they're not exclusive. So the legacy event is a father-son event. Uh, I want to say we had about 40% of the guys come that were in the Iron Council. It's 20 dads and 20 boys. Uh, we've got the main event, which is our big event. It's a 100-person event each and every year. And I want to say about 60, maybe even closer to 70% of those guys are in the Iron Council. That's because we give the Iron Council guys first right of refusal. Uh, mm -hmm. And then anything else that we have available, uh, we go to the Order of Man and guys listening to the podcast or subscribe to our newsletter or whatever. Uh, following us on social media, 
And so it's not exclusive to the Iron Council. There are some some exclusive features of these events that are for Iron Council guys, but we open it up to everybody. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. And then, um, so I know you've had, well, maybe we'll do a part two with this because I still, I would love to talk about uh, Dan Crenshaw and Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk and the whole, and the whole overall direction that the the podcast has been going and the directions that you're moving in. But you know what's up ahead for for Ryan Mickler and the Order Man and the Iron Council? It's not my favorite question. <laughs> and and that, to the extent that and, well, I saw that you signed a book deal. I did see that. Yeah, I mean, I got the the book coming on 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 board here in in 2022, and it's not a bad question. It's not my favorite question because I think a sure. lot of the times people people's you what they generally think is that if you have some sort of successful movement that there's got to be like these big lofty ambitious goals of scaling and generating more revenue and <laughs> no, no like no, that's not, yeah. all of that stuff is important sure i mean we're a business i've never shied away from that or have any qualms with telling people that we're a for-profit organization <laughs> um so yeah, I mean, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to get killer podcast guests on. We're going to have events. We're going to have products and offerings and things available to people. Uh, but I, but I, but I take all that with a grain of salt because my 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 biggest priority is making sure that I take care of my family, that I lead my wife mm-hmm. and my children well. Uh, and my children are young. You know, I've got thirteen down to five years old, and uh, I've got dance recitals and two or three football practices a week, and I've got all this stuff going on. And to me, when I hear people say hustle and grind, I think to myself, you know, I wish more men hustled and grinded more at home uh, than they did in their business. So mm. I don't know what's next. I mean, I've got plans, but a lot of what we build with Order of Man is very organic. And uh, I like it that way because it allows me the freedom and flexibility to be with my family, which is my real priority. That's the best possible answer. That's far better than anything I could have imagined. So thank you for that. <laughs> good, good. Really? Really? So where can men go to find out more about you and what you do? Um, orderofman.com is our headquarters. So check it out there. Uh, you're listening to a podcast, obviously. So if you like podcasts, then just type in order of man, wherever you're listening to this one, and then follow me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, all at Ryan Mickler. And between those couple of outlets, you'll be able to find everything that we do. You can also check out one of the free programs we have at uh, orderofman.com slash battle ready. So that's how you can find us. All those will be linked in the show notes. Well, hopefully we'll get a chance awesome. to do a part two because I got so many more questions, but thank I'm you sure so much will, for, man. for sure, man. I'm looking forward to seeing you next weekend for the main event as well. Me too. It's going to be awesome. Thanks, Will. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.